Alrighty, good evening everyone, and welcome back to another edition of your favorite educational entertainment opportunity of the entire week, which is our wholesome little call-in get-together. Now, uh, Richard here wrote a pretty interesting substack where he does something that he's unique in the media sphere or the media adjacent, adjacent sphere of uh, in doing, which is that he steel manned an argument about a topical issue that he doesn't fully agree with. But I do think it's admirable to steel man arguments that one doesn't fully agree with personally because, of course, that sharpens one's arguments that one does agree with. And it's also just healthy for rational uh, inquiry. So, um, and, you know, it's hard to imagine <laughs> media figures or media adjacent figures doing this in other contexts. Like, can you imagine your standard sort of freelance identity correspondent at some online publication steel manning a point of view antithetical to theirs just for the sake of rational, honest inquiry. Hard to imagine, but uh, Richard delivers and does it with regard to support for Ukraine. So, uh, Richard, you want to summarize the, uh, your take here? We can, but first, did you, I mean, do you see Kanye on Alex Jones? I, yeah. I, I know, it's the worst. I, I don't know why we should. I don't know why. <laughs> Uh, I saw, I mean, I saw a clip of, I saw some clips of it. I'm not going to sit through the entire thing. I don't know. Well, yeah, what's, what's, what's your thought? Uh, well, I mean, the dude's lost his mind. I mean, Alex Jones is like, yeah, you know, you don't really love Hitler. I mean, come on, we know that. Like, I love Hitler. There is so, everyone has something good in them, especially Hitler. Like, he just keeps, he's like, you know, they say Nazi. He raises that, I'm a Nazi. I mean, it was really funny. I mean, it's really over the top. It's like. I don't know. I don't know how this is going to end. I actually felt bad for him. I mean, I felt like this is going to like end in some kind of like personal disaster for him and him, uh, for him and those around him because this is not at the point where it's not like trolling or sort of cute anymore. But yeah, it's, it's, it's things a car wreck. So you don't think there's any element of it that could be performance art or could be some sort of creative uh, shtick? I think like it's hard to like even for his, in his own mind it might be hard to distinguish between like a breakdown and like a creative shtick. I think those for like somebody like Kanye might be like sort of the same thing. So I'm not sure. Yeah, me neither. You know, obviously, yeah. In the clips that I heard or the statements that I heard of him are, I mean, it seems it seems like they're deliberately meant to be outrageous and shocking. But it seems like his whole point is to be deliberately outrageous and shocking. This is one of the... I mean, and there's no more topic to elicit that reaction about than to talk about Hitler and Nazis in these terms. So maybe it does reflect an actual deep-seated, you know, uh, anti-Semitism on his part. Uh, Maybe there's a component of it. I don't know, it's hard to say. I guess I'm just wary of this being used as... You know, the basis for demanding that everyone subscribe to a moral panic narrative about how it's this epic monstrosity 
and uh, acute physical danger for Kanye to be speaking this way. And it's going to be sort of used to like discipline others. Again, not defending the substance of what Kanye says, right? Because I'm not even sure how much credence to ascribe to it in terms of it reflecting his honest beliefs. It's sort of difficult to parse. But, you know, I don't know. This idea that a musical artist going on a tangent where they're being deliberately shocking and it could be part performance art, could be part genuine belief, uh, and, you know, having this sort of mercurial style about them and going wild in a way that's really difficult to pin down. I mean, this is not a new thing for, for musicians, especially musicians, but also other kinds of artists over, throughout the ages. So the idea that it needs to necessarily be extrapolated into this notion of an acute physical threat now that is so dire that everybody needs to have a meltdown over it. I don't know, I'm a bit wary of that still, but at the same time, yeah, it's, um, it seems to, it seems, <laughs> it seems to seems cross. To, it might have like broken that. Like, I don't know. It's like, it's like, it's like, you know, there's like a taboo and they have these lines and then, you know, maybe I'm like talking myself to saying like Kanye West is like a genius who destroyed cancel culture. But it's like you go so far over it that like, you know, you don't know what to do. Like, it's just like, not yeah. like he cited this, you know, he like, you know, said this wrong word or he phrased the thing in a wrong way or like he wasn't, he was insufficient. No, I love Hitler. I'm a Nazi. And it's like, right. You know, he's still on Twitter. Like now they can't kick him off Twitter. And it's just like, okay, we just wake up tomorrow and we all go on with our lives. And I don't know. It's just like a blow to the whole thing. Yeah. You know, actually, now that you mention it, it's sort of a potentially interesting challenge to people who are ostensibly, you know, critics of cancel, cancel culture. And what does that even mean anymore? I'm not sure. But you know, like the general type I'm referring to where they're against the sort of capricious cancellation of people who transgress certain taboos and who make, make statements that are then read into and used to kind of destroy their career. And so do people now think, the people who are ordinarily disposed to be skeptical of like prevailing attitudes toward canceling people who make these like rhetorical violations, do they now say that you know? Oh, well, now Kanye is actually someone who's being rightfully canceled. Like, so does, are they in favor of cancel culture now with regard to Kanye? <laughs> uh, I would not be surprised. Let's see what I don't know. I haven't. I haven't been actually. Uh... I haven't been able to be on uh, uh, Twitter as much as I would have liked today. Um, yeah, they're talking about, I see Matt Walsh, Ben Shapiro, uh, you know, like he's, you oh, know. Ben, I mean, saying, Ben Shapiro, forget it. Yeah, I'm not seeing, I haven't, let me see if Ben Shapiro's saying kick him off the, kick him off the internet. He's saying he's suffering from a mental breakdown. It's an act of cruelty to have him on the air. He needs treatment, not a spotlight. So, yeah, he's doing his very compassionate Ben Shapiro thing. Uh, yeah, these are, yeah, you know, they're not going to, like he loses, you know, he he lost his Adidas deal. Like I don't think like people like Ben Shapiro were like upset, right? No. Uh, so yeah, I think that I think it's clear that to them it's 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 uh, you know it's a lot it's selective, obviously. Yeah, you know, this thing about this this uh, stupid uh, 
uh, fashion brand with the with the <laughs> with the child with this you know with the a child porn. That was really funny. Like Kanye, I don't know if this clip made it onto Twitter, but I just turned it on live, and he's like, "You know what? Like, I don't care about this thing. What they call the Basiaga or whatever it's called." Yeah, I had never even heard of that. He's like, uh, he's like, you know, don't criticize Basiaga. Instagram is just pornography. Any woman on Instagram is like exactly the same thing as child pornography. Like, there's nothing, like, no difference here. Like, shut your mouth. He's like, you know, got this like very weird, like, uh, uh, sort of fundamentalist sort of Christian thing going on. Um, and yeah, it's, uh, I don't know, this doesn't go anywhere. Like, there's no, like, political, like, uh, <laughs> there's no political payoff to this. There's no siphon at all. Well, supposedly he's running for president again. Uh, he wouldn't even answer, Alex asked him, but he and he wouldn't say. He's like, oh, Alex, you like you, you like me to answer these questions? And he's like, oh, just ask it yet. Like, he wouldn't even say he was running for president. I don't know if he. If he I don't know if he. If he well, I watched him on. Uh, I watched him on uh, the Tim Pool stream a few days ago. I don't know if you saw that. No, I, think, I, I think he did. He mentioned that he was running for president in the context of that's why he went to Mar-a-Lago apparently yeah, to meet with Trump. Trump. His vice president. Yeah, he's right. <laughs> and he's saying going around saying like yay twenty four. So I don't know how. Serious. Well, he did run. I mean, he did run in two thousand twenty. I mean, he, did, he wasn't he in the ballot in places, he but he it. had some like var- he had some variation of a presidential campaign of some sort. He got yeah, he got on the ballot in like twelve states or something like that, and he got you know point three percent of the vote or something like that. All right, in each one. Uh, so yeah, I mean, this is not it's, this is not going to appeal to anyone. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a political appeal we saw in twenty. 20- Twenty with and all that. It's going to be less this time with this new, you know, platform of uh, of Hitler love. Uh, so yeah, uh, you know, I, I mean, I don't. I'm not in the in Kanye's head, right? I can't know for sure what psychological or psychiatric malady he's dealing with, if any. Obviously, there's reporting about how he was on certain medications and then went off them, and you know, Kim Kardashian has said that he, you know stop taking his medications at some point. Um, but if you listen to him, at least on the Tim Pool thing, it's not as though he's entirely incoherent. Like, I'm not saying he's substantively correct about anything, but he's lucid, right? I mean, he's able to communicate coherent, intelligible thoughts. Yeah, he's not having a, he's not having like a schizophrenic... Yeah, he's not like a schizophrenic, babbling kind of mess. Yeah, even when he says "I love Hitler," it's like I find love in everybody. Like it's just, it's just, it's like that. He says, "I love Jews, I love Nazis, I love Hitler." It's like a very like sort of like a, you know, it's just like sort of like a Christ-like you know attitude, yeah. um, but in like the most provocative way possible. <laughs> so that's funny. I, I I almost wonder if his point here is to be actively become like the most canceled taboo person on earth, and like that's. Part of his, like, uh, I don't know. It's hard to see what what his ideology is. It seems like his ideology is basically just, you know, what people call Christian nationals. And, like, liberals are calling that everything now. But it does seem like that. Like, to the extent he has, like, political views, it's never about economics. It's never about foreign policy. It's always, like, abortion. And it's, like, recognize God. 
Um, and yeah. it's, you know, it's like women, you know, B should be modest and, you know, all this stuff. He's like, is he, the, uh, the, on Alex Jones today, he's like, Kim, you know, stop doing this. You need to get married, you know, find a nice man and marry him. You know, it, she doesn't go back with him, I guess. So it's like, yeah, it's like the super like social conservatism, this, you know, super Christian thing. And that's like basically it. I mean, that's like the extent of his politics you know, anti like BLM and like these this wokeness identity politics. But that's that's really it. So yeah, there is a there is a coherent politics there, I guess. Um, and his latest musical output, actually, I don't know if you ever listened to Con- as a musical artist. I actually did well before it was even conceivable that he would have had any sort of political. I mean, I heard them on the profile. radio. I, I knew it. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I actually was into. You know, he, he was probably the first uh, hip hop or rap artist who I actually got into authentically on. Uh, on my own, which is, um, you know, interesting. And, you know, one of his albums, actually, uh, My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy, is still one of my favorite albums. Um, uh, but anyway, I was just going to say that his most recent uh, musical output is very heavily Christian-themed. It's like, you know, gospel. It's uh-huh. um, almost like it's almost like Christian music in the kind of quintessential sense of the genre. Um, and yeah, that seemed to coinc- that seemed to coincide with this, you know, political foray into having as his main priorities, yeah, this like vaguely Christian nationalistic uh, ethos around, you know, abortion and stuff. Yeah, plus like an actual like hostility towards Jews, but like it's not like you know it's not even like a coherent enough to be a political, you know, thing. Yeah, I mean it's interesting. Yeah, people don't like cause, you know he's hanging out with. Fuentes, who's like also like this, you know, Christian guy, but also like a guy who cares about race. So like, this really yeah. <laughs> Did you see the photo? I don't know who put it out. I think it might have been Kanye himself, but there was a photo of him, Fuentes, and Milo on what looks to be Kanye's private jet. I saw. I saw it on. Uh, I saw it on. Uh, I, th- I saw it on Tim Pool's account. Yeah. Account. Oh yeah. No. That yeah. Tim Pool. I think put it out. Tim Pool is also on the jet apparently, and. Milo is ostentatiously reading the Bible in the photo. <laughs> well, it's funny. I made that comment, but it's, somebody pointed out to me it's not actually the Bible. Uh, it's oh, it's not? Else. Yeah, what was it? Uh, let me see. Somebody said it to me. I did it correct because it's just a joke and it's funny, but let me see here. Uh, it looked like the Bible. No, I, maybe that's that's what I thought it was. Uh, let's see. I, I don't know, but it's not, it's not, it's not the Bible. Someone just said. Someone said maybe you could actually see the cover. They saw the cover and like you could you could read it if you want. What was it? Mind Kampf? No, it wasn't Mind Kampf either. It was it was, <laughs> it was something else. I forget. Yeah, uh, I guess you know. Just to, in conclusion here, um, I'm still very much wary about how this can be used to foment some sort of like mandatory political panic that everybody has to subscribe to as if Kanye having a bit of a wild uh, tangent here is this acutely menacing physical threat. Um, that seems like it's not really accurate or at least it would have yeah. to be established well, by like- evidence. This is like Christmas morning for like Ben Collins types, right? Like I think right. they don't know they don't know what to do with. I sort of see like they don't know what to do with this. Like you know, they can't complain to Twitter. Like they got he already they already took his uh, Adidas thing. Uh, 
Like, what is it? It's just all he is is just Twitter and what else? I mean, what else? What else could they do? There's really not. I don't know. Well, they, could get, they, they could get his music removed from. Well, here, I mean, that like would actually Spotify? be maybe a British too. Yeah, I mean, from Spotify or I don't know, Apple. Yeah, I think it's like. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like they've never tried to do this for somebody as. When did they remove somebody from Spotify? Who who have they done that to? I, uh, there was a there was a there was a move to get Joe Rogan taken off Spotify. Yeah, yeah. because of COVID misinformation. Yeah, but has anyone's music ever been taken off? I, I, sounds, I, I keep thinking that that must have happened at some point. Um, Certain artists, like Neil Young, threatened to remove, and maybe even did remove, but I think then put back on their music yeah. on spot, so Spotify so in protest of Joe Rogan being right, no, yeah. there. Yeah, but the, 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 someone's music. So Bill Cosby, so like here, it's not music, but the Cosby Show. After the Cosby stuff happened, like you couldn't find Bill Co- the Cosby Show. Yeah, that's right. Anymore. They just took them off TV. The, the, a lot of the Confederate flag stuff, like Dukes of Hazard, I think that stuff became like, like you know, harder to find after uh, Dylan Roof. Um, but so that so like yeah, the, we've seen shows be canceled for behavior unrelated to the show, right? Um, mm-hmm. We haven't seen someone's music be canceled for something the artist said or did, and it would be. You know, it'd be funny because, like, you know, there's I'm sure there's artists who've, you know, killed people probably, um, who, uh, you know, whose music is there, who've raped people. Well, and you know, there was a, there was a, there was something of an attempt to do that to Michael Jackson. Yeah. And it did it. I it mean, did, Michael Jackson's musical, uh, au- revoir, is that how you pronounce that word? Uh, um, I think. Oeuvre? Yeah. Oeuvre? I think so. Yeah, I think so. I'm not sure. Well, you know the you know the word. Uh, <laughs> one of those tricky French words. Um, his 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 musical, you know, his like discography was just so pervasive in the culture that it would have been almost impossible to actually remove it from anywhere that it could have possibly been played or you know uh, platformed. Um, but you know, especially when that uh, documentary. There was a new documentary or a new-ish documentary on Michael Jackson that came out a couple of years ago that purported to be, you know, uh, dispositive evidence that Michael Jackson had actually been a uh, you know craven child molester, even though he was acquitted in his trial in 2003 for it. Um, and there was a bit of a uh, push to, you know, cancel his music from you know decades earlier that was just in like the the american pantheon of just popular music i remember being at a bar in brooklyn um maybe a couple months after that documentary came out and a a michael jackson song was being played and like a person like a woman at a table near near me like actually got genuinely incensed by it and we went to go complain to have them take off the michael jackson song (laughs) yeah yeah, so this would be new. This would be starting with someone who's like you know, the, you know, sort of a list, uh, uh, you know, uh, musician. Um, it would be new. I, it'd be interesting if they if they try to do that. I don't, I don't, I don't think they succeed. I just think it's like he's. I think he's just sort of gone so far that it's like I don't know. It's like if you go too far, it's like impossible to cancel you. I don't know. It, 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 there is, I, I think, a kind of like strange dynamic here. Where it's like going too far is like you know is like safer than just like you know barely saying something right. Like I think if Taylor Swift just like like 
praised Hitler like off the cuff and then like apologized <laughs> for it. Like I think it would be worse than like every you know it's like Kanye like everyone's used to it by now, right? Well, right because there's almost a presupposition with Kanye that part of it is just this stream of consciousness provocation that's always been in a way like this indelible element of his entire public persona. Like remember, like in he remember when he did the uh, George Bush doesn't care about black people thing. Of course, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I think that was sort of, I, I mean, it was okay to, it wouldn't have been a cancellation offense because, at the time because it was critical of Bush. And there was some outrage for it, but I also think it was kind of just seen as Kanye being a artistic provocateur in a way that wasn't like this, a strictly political statement. Uh, and, and, that, and that's been the case for other musicians over the years as well. I mean, David Bowie had like a quasi-fascistic phase. Um, and, uh, you know, in the 70s. And so did uh, like Eric Clapton and stuff. And every now and then you see that brought up as like part of a demand to, you know, reckon with the past or something and not give a pass to these fascistic old men, uh, old white men. But... I don't know. Eventually, just kind of the the furor settles down. And people just kind of don't take don't really put stock in it as like a literal resurrection of Hitler style political views being on the march in the United States in two thousand twenty two. Yeah. No. When, he, when I remember the um, when he said uh, uh, Bush doesn't care about black people, that was, people did I think consider that pol- uh, political. People didn't. Kanye wasn't just like a. Uh, he wasn't like as big of a clown sort of a provocateur as he is now. Um, I think it was seen as like, this was a criticism of Bush that like Bush like didn't care. He was asleep at the wheel during Hurricane Katrina. People could accuse yeah. him of like being racist for it. So it was like in the context of like a debate, you know, people were, uh, people were having. Uh, yeah. And, and so, I, you know, I don't know. It's like, you know, I think this is, I think it's just like, you know, it's, it's, it's this, it's this plus Musk buying Twitter. Like, you can't, like, you know, separate these two things. Like, you know, they're happening sort of at the same time. And Elon Musk just gets to be like, I'm not going to let Alex Jones back on. Uh, you know, he's not like, you know, he's, he's not defending Kanye West or anything. Um, he's just... Uh, I'm, I'm one second. Um, and, oh, you uh, want to... Should we have another call-in guest? Either <laughs> you're tired, go to mommy. No. <laughs> The uh, uh, what was I? What was I? What was I that makes that, that makes what we're doing wholesome here. <laughs> this is a family show, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, speaking of Musk, uh, I don't know if you saw this, but uh, a couple of days ago, I I tweeted a, a screenshot of the Twitter content moderation policy, circa 2015, which was remarkably bare bones compared to what it has ballooned to now. I actually did a, a monk debate this week um, around Musk's takeover of Twitter and whether it's the death knell for democracy. It wasn't like a full-fledged official monk debate before a live audience at, in Toronto, but it was like a their podcast version. Um, and uh, one thing I pointed out was that <laughs> um, if you look at the so-called abusive behavior policy of Twitter – in 2015, it was under 300 words, and it was very limited. It was basically 
uh, no direct threats of personalized physical violence, um, no uh, targeted harassment. And if you look at how they define targeted harassment, it's really mo- mostly to do with spam and sort of manipulation technically, uh, technically of the platform. But beyond that, Twitter says, you know, content is not going to be removed simply by virtue of it being deemed offensive. And Twitter is also not going to mediate disputes among users. That was the policy in 2015, which today would be, you know, denounced as some sort of fascistic policy, right? But that was what Twitter was publicly saying its policy was in 2015. And it's not as though Twitter was run at the time by, you know, hardcore conservative Republicans. It was still just generically liberal. It just hadn't undergone this, you know, post-2016 transformation into, you know, basically an online uh, adult daycare center. Um, Whereas if you look at what the policy is today and the pre-Musk policies, like the ones that were in effect before Musk took over, are still technically in effect, or at least seem to be, because they're on the website and they are portrayed anyway as being still the binding policies that Twitter has, is enforcing. And uh, the abusive hara- uh, behavior policy now, it's, um, it's over 1,100 words. It's like, you know, more than tripled. And it's got all this jargon infused in it around not allowing people's voices to be silenced, around, you know, making sure that statements which may result in harm are prohibited, you know, all this kind of nonsense, vague, just therapeutic claptrap. So what I suggested was just that, you know, if one thing Musk could do is just literally copy and paste the policy from 2015 and reinstitute it. And then when people complain, just ask them, okay, are you saying that Twitter was institutionally fascist back in 2015? <laughs> and, yeah, they did um, think that. I remember that was... And Musk that himself... Was and Musk himself re- uh, replied to it and said it was a good idea. <laughs> uh, oh, wait. Oh, he replied to you? Yeah. <laughs> oh, interesting. Okay. So he said that's a good idea. Did they do it? Did they do it? What's well, he, uh, he said uh, he tweeted. He just tweeted at me that make, this makes sense. I don't know what he's going to do, but uh, he did yeah. reply. Yeah, that's good. That would, be a, that would be a good idea. Yeah. 2015, I remember they started banning in 2015, 2016. That was really when it took off. Uh, so it didn't stop them, obviously. It's all the enforcement, but... Yeah, did you see this thing? There was this Intercept article that they're getting rid of all these Antifa uh, people. Yeah, I saw that. Um, I don't know what the deal is exactly with those. I mean, it seems like, I don't know, un- uh, unfortunately, um, uh, barring any fuller explanation of the reasoning behind those bannings, and I don't, I don't, I'm not even that familiar with some of those people who were banned, but, um, you know, absent a more full explanation of the reasoning behind it, uh, it could it be legitimately used as ammunition against Musk on hypocrisy grounds. So I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a little bit leery of those. Well, there's one, I know there's one guy who was like into doxing people and that's against, you know, that's against the, uh, uh, I think that's against Twitter policy. Yeah, it is. Uh, and well, so always was bad. Yeah, it's yeah. possible that this stuff just was not, in, you know, these people were always in violation and it was just never enforced, and now it's just getting enforced. That's you know that could be it, possibly. Yeah. Well, we yeah. shall see. Um, you want to uh, give a rundown of your uh, Ukraine steel man argument? Yeah, sure. So I think the best reason to support U.S. aid to Ukraine 
is not that it helps Ukraine. I started by saying that this is obviously terrible for Ukraine. Um, any deal they could have made with Russia would have probably been better than what's happened. I mean, the refugee numbers and then internally displaced numbers, they're not like any war like, you know, I've seen, um, in, at least in recent history. I mean, it's like, you know, 30, 40 percent of people have left their homes either within the country or have gone abroad. I mean, this is just these are numbers are off the charts. The GDP is, you know, expected to fall 45 percent in one year. Like, you know, you could have, you know, some people think that, you know, Russia, you know, was going to invade anyway and Ukraine had, make all the Ukrainian slaves. And this is, I mean, this is, I think, not something to be taken very seriously. Um, so, the, you know, the, the idea is not that it's like good for Ukraine. I think probably Ukraine is going to be in bad shape for decades and decades to come, assuming the war even ends today, um, which it won't. It, it could go on for a very long time. Uh, but I think the idea that there should be some cost, I think that the idea that there should be some costs um, for invading other countries, um, you know, that's defensible, right? So if Russia uh, can take over other countries, can take over another country or take over parts of another country um, and the world does nothing, then we have, you know, we have basically the pre-1945 uh, pre world where in countries invade each other. Now, the U.S., of course, as I know, as you know, as everyone knows, uh, invades a lot of people, too. Um, but you know, that's, doesn't mean it's good for other people. So if it's like one person, one country can break the, the rules, it doesn't mean that it's like a better world if every country can break it. Right. Uh, but, and, but hold on. Let me, let me just, let me just challenge you there for briefly. Cause you know, the instant claim would be that it's what about is to even bring up the fact that the United States has done similarly. Right. But if the, if the reason why that, Ukraine support would be justified is that you need to punish unjustified violations of sovereignty or, you know, the aggressive seizure of territory by warring countries. Doesn't it undermine the whole idea that like if, if, if this is a case for steel manning us support to Ukraine and it's the, it's done on the ground that, the principle of disallowing countries from violently seizing land is such of, of such paramount importance, and yet the United States simultaneously does the same thing. Well, doesn't that undermine the principle that it's claiming to be upholding in sending the aid? So it's not just a matter of whataboutism to mention that. It gets to the whole heart of why the provision of the aid to Ukraine is supposedly justified. Uh, well, you could you could accuse the U.S. of hypocrisy if you want, and then you know that that's justified. I don't think it's like says that therefore aid to Ukraine is bad. It could still be good. Like you could have a sheriff who goes around and like is lawless and breaks down people's doors and is a real prick, and then like he arrests like somebody else, right, and stops them from doing it. It doesn't mean like when he arrested the other guy and stopped them from doing something he was... Well, he no, was it doesn't mean that, that Ukraine, aid to Ukraine is bad. I mean, that the hypocrisy of the U.S. or the inconsistency of the application of the supposed standard uh, uh, whereby violent seizure of territory is prohibited, that doesn't make Ukraine, aid to Ukraine bad. It makes untenable the argument put forth by the U.S. for why aid to Ukraine is so necessary if they're claiming that upholding this principle is so sacrosanct and yet their own conduct violates the very principle which they're saying needs to be upheld. It's, you know, they could be doing one thing to uphold the principle and they could be doing something else at a different time to uh, 
harm the principle. Now, if, I mean, first of all, to say the U.S. does the same thing, it doesn't do the exact same thing. No, it doesn't it exact same thing. claim it doesn't annex territory, right? It doesn't say Iraq and Libya are now part of the United States and we're going to have a referendum to, to join America. I mean, so it doesn't do that. So at least you could say it doesn't annex territory, right? So, it, it, you know, it's innocent in, in, uh, of, that, of that charge, at least. But still, I mean, you could say, like, you know, the U.S. does one good thing for the sake of the norm and, when, and then it's done bad things in the past. That's, that's fine. I mean, it doesn't... The Steelman case for Ukraine would say, like, so what? Like, so we let Russia do whatever it wants and not have any consequences? Like, like would that make the world better if, like, they both can, you know, act, you know, they both can act destructively abroad? You know, not necessarily. Yeah. I mean, of course, the United States doesn't do the same thing. And to bring up what the United States does in this domain is not to assert that the, it's literally the same as what Russia has done. Obviously, there are clear and... Um, observable differences, but I almost don't buy this uh, rebuttal that what the U.S. has done is that manifestly different that it cannot even be reasonably compared. Like when people say, oh, Russia is annexing the territory and the United States has not annexed Iraq or Libya or whatever. Well, I mean, okay, maybe it hasn't annexed Iraq. Maybe the United States has not annexed Iraq, but the, the United States still has like essentially permanent bases in Iraq that are under United States jurisdiction that were acquired. I mean, the land on which those bases were constructed was violently seized by the United States through an invasion that was never authorized by any international body that confers legitimacy to military action, or is supposed to anyway, under the UN Charter, which everybody also loves to invoke against Russia. And yeah, I mean, Russia's actions clearly do violate provisions of the UN Charter. But again, I guess if the Steelman argument for the provision of aid to Ukraine is supposedly that, that it is necessary to uphold these sacrosanct principles, and yet there are a litany of actions that the United States has simultaneously undertaken that undermines those very same principles, then I think it's it's not just a matter of hypocrisy or it's not just a matter of the sheriff saying, oh, I'm corrupt in these instances, but I'm going to take down this criminal here and that's fine. Um, because it, what you're saying is that the rationale for why the aid is necessary is the principle itself. And the principle itself is being simultaneously actively undermined. So it can't be the case that the principle is really held well, in that well, high the regard. Prin the principle is not like a complete, like, all or nothing thing. It's not like it's 100% or it's like 0%, right? It's like somewhere in between, right? And so if, like, the principle is, like, you can't invade other countries or, like, they'll fight back and people will send aid to their to your opponent and people will sanction you. And at the same time, but like, there's this big exception for the U.S., which is, you know, we just all admit it's too powerful for anyone to do that. Maybe there's an exception for China, too. Maybe China is also too big and powerful for it to happen if China wanted to invade Taiwan. We'd see. We'd see if, like, the response would be, you know, how strong the response would be or not. Right. But that's still like, OK, the principle is like 98 percent of countries can't. You know, it's not it's a pile to 98 percent of countries, but not the not the U.S. and China, maybe. Right. Well, I just think if there's like a bevy of evidence that the what the U.S. does in practice shows that it doesn't actually hold this principle in such sacrosanct, you know, esteem, then that does undercut the veracity or the viability of invoking that supposedly sacrosanct yeah, principle. Not? In this one narrow instance, I mean, even just look at Taiwan, right? I mean, the U.S. simultaneously claims that it regards, at least as a matter of legality, 
Taiwan to be within the, quote, territorial integrity of China, right? That's the, supposedly the one China principle that the United States still technically adheres to, while in practice it's saying that territorial integrity is actually meaningless with regard to China because the United States is turning Taiwan into a, you know, a militarized uh, bulwark. So, uh, again, if the principle is never evenly applied anywhere, it's, it's only so vigorously applied in one individual circumstance, then that does undermine the case that the principle is actually as paramount as is made out to be when justifying aid to Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, it's... So you're saying is like it's not like it's not an actual principle if it only even if only seriously applies in one individual circumstance. Well, no, it doesn't apply just in one circumstance. It applies to whenever it's not the U.S. So it's like every circumstance, (laughs) right? Right. Or China. I mean, those are pretty two. Those are two pretty big exceptions. Yeah, but this is like this is life. So like in the you know you have like these you know the, the realists would say like you know like someone like Mersheimer would say every country should have its own sphere of influence and leave the others alone. But Mersheimer wouldn't say, you know, he wouldn't talk about principles and democratic norms. He would use different language for it. But or how about idea. Kosovo? I mean, have you ever read, I mean, Richard, you should read, I don't know if you've ever read this, but go read the uh, International um, is it International Criminal Court or it was the Hague. I mean, it was the International Judicial Body, and now the name's escaping me, that had to rule on the legality of Kosovo unilaterally declaring independence in 2008 from Serbia, which then the United States in the final year of the Bush administration rushed to, uh, rushed to uh, recognize, as did most of the rest of Western Europe. And it really, I mean, it's amazing how flatly it contradicts all of these claim, uh, pretensions to territorial integrity now because it was uh, just a flagrant violation of the what would have been the territorial integrity of Serbia. And not only that, contradicted the very mandate that the UN had passed in 1999 authorizing an intervention in Kosovo on humanitarian grounds, right, where they established like an administrative authority yeah. over, um, over Kosovo where UN forces were able to go in. Uh, it was just a total undercutting of even just what was prescribed in the very UN authorization, right? But the U.S. disregards it because, you know, guess what? Russia wasn't powerful with, you know, Serbia as its, you know, proxy to really stage any kind of meaningful protest. So, again, I don't know. I just think if you you can find such an overabundance of countervailing evidence which shows that this principle is not ever upheld consistently, then I'm not sure that I I really buy this, that it's a steel manning or a fully steel-manned argument if it just, again, seems to only apply in this one individual circumstance with, like, massive glaring exceptions that render moot the whole idea of the principle. Yeah, so I guess it's, uh, you know, it's like, I, I mean, I guess you could put it this way. Like, is it better to have a world where, like, you know, there's a, hip, there's, a hip, there's a principle that, like, the people who enforce the principle are hypocritical about, like, very hypocritical. You could just, you know, you could, example, example. Or is it better to have a world where, since they don't always follow it or they often don't follow it, like, anyone should do anything and, like, you know, it should be anarchy, right? Like, there's a lot of, like, liberal internationalists who will say, you know, uh, you know, will say Iraq was bad, Libya was bad. 
Um, and, you know, we have to acknowledge that. And like the U.S., you know, they want they, they agree with you and they would say the U.S. should not do these things. Maybe Kosovo. I don't know. Like every liberal wants to recognize Kosovo. But like on all these other questions, they would agree with you. But then also say the U.S. should like work with allies against anyone who who engages in aggression. Right. I don't think it's incoherent. I don't think it's like because like they are forced because like you point to them. OK, there was Iraq. There was Kosovo. Like you have to say now the U.S., you know, can't support aid to Ukraine, right? It's like, it's like, you don't have to do that. You can still think aid to Ukraine is on balance good, you know, for the reason if it's like enforces the principle to some extent, like if it enforces it for every other country, but the US, hey, you, you've, you've, you've prevented like 99% of potential inv- invasions, right? Not like the 1% that the US does, but like every other country potentially invading every other. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, or I don't think it's wholly incoherent. I just think in order to make it coherent, there would have to be acknowledgments of these arbitrary exceptions. Um, and well, yeah, yeah, you know, they, 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 and they, they couldn't they couldn't talk about it in these like grandiose moralizing terms in the same way they in the way that they usually do if they simultaneously had to allow for such glaring exceptions. Yeah, no, they, I mean, they, this, yeah, it's not that, you know, like you can't catch Tony Blinken in like, you know, a contradiction. Like, that's not, the, you know, obviously, <laughs> right. you can. Uh, but, you know, making the good case, like, if Tony Blinken could be like 100% honest and like give the best case possible, I didn't have to worry about like the politics of it or anything like that. Like, this is what I think he would, he would say, or at least what he should say. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. Tonight there's a, a state dinner for uh, Macron in DC. And I don't know what was France had this sort of low grade intervention in Mali for years, you know, supposedly under the auspices of combating the uh, Islamist insurgency there. Was that upholding the territorial integrity of Mali? I mean, I don't know. It just it just seems like there's just piles and piles of countervailing evidence that anybody actually cares about this supposed principle. I don't know. I think, I think um, these war on terror stuff. I think often I don't know about Mali. I, I don't know anything about Mali, but often they're at the you know they're there at the um, invitation of the government. Um, so then you know that's that's often these cases. So I don't know. Like it doesn't France doesn't invade you know many countries. Maybe in Libya. Well, sometimes well, they that, are. Sometimes they aren't. I mean, the Pakistan. Now Ever, or um, uh, 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 there were times when the Pakistan government did not invite and actually actively opposed war on terror style incursions and drone strikes and such. It yeah. never made a difference. Yeah, no, the U.S. That's again the U.S. Yeah, does do that does that all the time. Yeah, Syria, the, the government does not want it there. Obviously, uh, no, that's the yeah same argument. Yeah, they're yeah. fighting sovereignty all the time. What are what are the uh, what are the other key prongs of this argument? Uh, basically, that like there is you know this, okay so like we talked about the norm and like whether you think it's like coherent or not to uh, enforce it, but the norm is very actually important. Like most of history, um, you know, th- there was not no norm like this. And I think empirically, if you look at the evidence, and I think Pinker's book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, is very good on this. That basically there was a change after 1945. This uh, uh, the um, uh, you know, like normal invasions of one country invades another and tries to take a territory, that stuff really, really dropped off. And the question is why? I mean, is it, 
like if someone was like the biggest neocon, they would say it's just because of the uh, American empire, right? That's like if you're like the most paid, like pro-American, uh, you know, pro-interventionist position possible, you might think, no, it's something else. Obviously, it's like impossible to prove. You know, there's other, uh, so, you know, there's other um, uh, things going on, nuclear weapons, there's economic development, there's culture, you know, global culture uh, changes. Um, so, you know, it's, it's impossible to know. But, you know, the idea is that if you think it's, you know, because aggressors are responded to, then that's a good reason to keep to keep doing that. Now, you also have to, you know, the Steelman case has to take seriously, like the risk of nuclear weapons uh, being used. And that's, the, you know, that's like that, that's a more immediate concern. You know, you want to you want to also preserve the taboo on no nuclear weapons. You don't want to break that taboo either. That's also that's uh, that's as you know, important as that's more important than territorial, the territorial integrity norm. And, you know, I could go through it if you want. But basically, I just I make the Steelman case that we're not, you know, there's probably not going to be nuclear weapons use, although I'm not convinced that, you know, I'm not completely convinced that it's that there's no chance at all. Yeah. You know, uh, John Mearsheimer, there was a podcast that he did on Unheard uh, that just came out this week. Actually, I did the very same podcast in the same room when I was in London. So that was sort of interesting. He was in the same chair that I was in, um, in this, uh, little office. Um, anyway, he, um, I mean, he is still putting forth the most ominous possible interpretation of where the war is going. Um, he says that essentially no negotiated settlement is really possible, um, given the extremely divergent interests of all the relevant parties, namely the U.S. and Russia, with Ukraine as sort of the intermediary. Um, and I think he's probably correct in his sort of characterization of the trajectory of the war. And I'm, I, I would think that you agree probably, Richard, as well. You know, this is sort of aside from the steel man argument. Um, because, I mean, just look at a couple of recent uh, developments, right? You had the Polish missiles incident, which at the very least shows that the Ukraine government is a, has a propensity for recklessness – um, has propensity to uh, engage in conduct where they're not particularly mindful of the destructive ramifications for the rest of the world by, you know, essentially trying to <laughs> goad into existence a uh, NATO, a full-fledged NATO-Russia war. Um, you have that. You have more and more momentum around this idea that Ukraine is going to officially launch an offensive against Crimea. Um, and, you know, not, which I am going to, I'm going to have a piece on myself that's going to come out at some point. I've delayed it a, a bit, but I've done, you know, a fair amount of original port reporting on it at this point. No, no member of Congress who I've talked to, or uh, even Pentagon officials I talked to, uh, contradicted the idea that the United States will remain in its current posture even vis-a-vis -vis an offensive into Crimea. Like, or in other words, there's no real reason to believe that Ukraine is not going to be able to press on to Crimea with the United States as a full backer and operational coordinator, right? So, which is a hugely well, there could, I mean, there, consequential there, potentially raising of the stakes. And third, yeah. um, just quickly, if there was a this – um, half-year NATO meeting that happened in uh, Bucharest where the uh, where NATO, the foreign ministers collectively reiterated their affirmation 
that uh, Ukraine will join NATO as a full full member. So they haven't budged on that issue, which was one of the central precursor motivators, at least as Russia tells it, for why the war started in the first place. So I guess everybody is digging in. And and as the cherry on top, Biden submitted to Congress a budget supplemental request for Ukraine that dwarfs any of the requests that have been given thus far. And uh, there's every reason to believe that Congress will probably uh, add a couple of additional billion onto it, which is what they did uh, in May and in September. So, yeah, um, I think Mearsheimer is right in that there's really no wavering at all that uh, suggests any kind of diplomatic opening. Now, maybe something different could happen, but I think what would have to happen is that like the whole, you know, the whole interpretation of the of the significance of the war on the part of either the U.S., Russia, or Ukraine, or some combination, would have to change substantially in that the massive existential stakes would have to be revised such that a concession, a concessionary stance or a stance that entails certain, certain concessions as to you know, the initial impetus for the interventions in the war, those would have to be modified. And there's really not a whole lot of good indication that anybody is willing to do that anytime soon because if anything, it's going in the opposite direction. Uh, so when you say um, there's, uh, you know, the, the uh, you know, there's like no reason to think that like U.S. won't push uh, Ukraine to go to Crimea. I don't know. I see I see some indications that the Biden administration is um, does have some limits. I mean, there's like, you know, rumblings in the press, like Mark Milley going out there saying, oh, you know, they should negotiate. Yeah. I mean, I think that was phony, that- but. Anyway, go ahead. Maybe, maybe. but I mean, the, fa- the fact that they're not giving Ukraine weapons right now that can reach their full potential, the attack arms, they, you know, they, 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 they are not getting, you know, the weapons that could reach Crimea, which the U.S. can give them, but doesn't. Um, the U.S. is not giving them tanks. It's not giving them, like, ICBMs. It can't hit, like, things that can hit inside Russia, even things for now that can hit inside Crimea. So, like, there's limits to what the Biden administration is willing to give them. So it's possible that the Biden administration does have a line in the in the sand in its head. It's not, it's not helpful for them to say it now. They're, they don't want to come out and say we're not going to help them try to take Crimea. But, you know, it's possible that that's sort of that's how they're thinking about this down the line. Right. But the Biden administration has always claimed to have limits. I mean, they remember they claimed to have limits about the transfer but, but, of the MiG jets. But the thing is, yeah, but, the, those limits get eroded as time goes on. Remember, like, that was stuff. the whole point of that New Yorker article where it was one of the first times where like the actual granularity of the U.S. operational coordination was journalistically sort of described. Where Remember that the, what it was, the defense minister of Ukraine said, yeah, don't worry about it. They always say that they're not going to give us this stuff, and then they eventually give it. I mean, there was just a Reuters article this week about how the U.S. is actually, uh, there was a basically a proposal submitted to the U.S. European Command by, um, is it Boeing? I think it was Boeing, yeah, about a 100-mile strike weapon being dispatched to Ukraine. So there's all these sorts of things in the, in the works, right? And there's this whole push across the defense industry to dramatically increase capacity and production capacity, rather. So I mean, what are they going to do with the dramatically increased production capacity? Well, they're going to figure out ways to get the weapons into the field so that the uh, production is not for naught. I mean, and so again, 
If there were hard evidence other than occasional rumblings and rumors and stray comments that don't actually ever amount to anything, because what Milley said eventually ended up being contradicted flatly by the defense secretary, Austin. Hmm. Um, well, you so, think I mean, until there's something that actually that is actually tangible that shows a you know a concrete modification of the current trajectory of the war and the capacities being marshaled toward the war, then okay, then I'll be willing to entertain the theory that there's, you know, this actual hard limit, but I haven't seen that. Uh, well, you say a lot of the, um, the sort of the, the limits have eroded. A lot of them haven't. So maybe they, they, they haven't given tanks. They haven't given the tack up. So there, there is limits. Well, they're facilitating tank transfers. Yeah, it's, it's different. I mean, the, the stuff that I think it's the technological difference, but the missiles is a big one and that's what Ukraine really wants. Um, and they're not, and they're not getting that. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, some limits have eroded, some limits have not, there's not a, you know, like people, you know, the the U S has not sent like ground troops or anything. I mean, people were worried about that. U S has not done a no fly zone. So yeah, there's not an indication that like the Biden administration just is unlimited in its support, right? It's not because there's more it could be doing that it's not. So just that fact alone is like a reason to think there's limits. And so we don't know. You can't just say they're going to support taking back Crimea and uh, DNP and LPR. LPR. Like maybe, maybe, maybe not. I, I don't know. Uh, I just think if you compare what the limits were presumed to have been in February versus what the limits now apparently are in December, there's been a massive erosion of the limits, right? Yeah. So yeah, not yeah. everything has been maximally given all at once, but that's sort of what you would have expected as because as the war is protracted, then it's very the 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 erosion of those limits are incremental and subtle, and that's you know that's pretty very similar to what happened even in World War II, where you know lend lease kind of escalated very gradually, or like the nature of U.S. intervention pre World War II escalated gradually over time to the point where people really missed the significance of each individual step. Um, so it's not like all of a sudden Roosevelt was a hundred percent maximalist of wanting to send everything imaginable to. The, to Britain and France, right? And then later the Soviet Union. Yeah, I, uh, agree, it was, I, agree, yeah. I agree with you. I'm not arguing because I disagree with you. I agree with you. <laughs> the, the opposite case. I, I think that even if, and, and I'll go like farther than that, and I'll say that even if the Biden administration, um, even if it, maybe it thinks that it's head right now that it's not going to support taking back Crimea. <sighs> I think even if it thinks that the politics are going to be such that like, oh, my God, Ukraine is like on the brink of like a total because like to get to that point, Ukraine is going to have to have a lot of victories, right? That it can even thread Crimea and like the momentum is going to be with Ukraine and that people will be like really excited. Like, you know, how can you pull the rug from under at this point? They're almost this. They're, you know, within an inch of taking back their entire their entire country. Like, how could you not? But I don't think the Biden administration is going to have much of a choice. I mean, I think it's going to be very difficult for them not to do it. Yeah. Remember Biden himself. I mean, I'm sort of alone in making this argument, but I I think that Biden personally has an unusually robust ideological investment in this issue. It's not like he's just been taken along for a ride with the prevailing consensus. He's actually uh, very much a driver of the consensus, and it stretches back decades over his career where this is ha- happens to have been a particularized in- interest of his from an ideological standpoint. So this idea that all of a sudden he's just going to capitulate 
and uh, <laughs> to to Russia and just kind of overturn all the highfalutin democratic ideals that have been ascribed to the necessity of the U.S. intervention in, in on behalf of Ukraine. It just doesn't seem plausible to me, especially given that it's been interpreted that the midterm elections signified basically just a ratification of the status quo. Yeah, Biden is, uh, you know, you're right. I think he cares about this a lot. I think he's like a very old man who just thinks in old ways. So like Europe is like the center of the world to him. And like, he doesn't care about the Middle East. And maybe he cares some about China. But like, yeah, Europe is just, yeah, the most important thing to him. Um, so why is it that you, um, why do you ultimately reject your steel man argument? Uh, well, I mean, I think that I still, I think that basically this war looks like a loss for Russia, um, no matter what, like, you know, you could make an argument, you could make an argument that like, it looks like a win for Russia. If it gets, uh, anything, if it gets Crimea, it's going to look like, you know, a win because it didn't have this territory recognized and now it does. So it's like, you know, it just like in the hundred years, they look at the map. Oh, Putin, here's like how he found Russia. And like, here's like all this territory he gained. So it would be like, you know. It could be seen as a gain from like somebody who's just like has a very simplistic um, understanding, and that's how often how we understand history. Um, but I think that the embarrassment for Russia has been so over the top. I mean, I think it's been such a such a failure. I think people have learned the lesson that like you know taking territory is hard, and the world is going to unite against you. And that, you know, it's like there needed to be some kind of response for that to work, right? If everyone just said we're not going to do anything. Uh, you know, that wouldn't have, that wouldn't have, uh, you know, that, that wouldn't have been the result. I think, I think that that's sort of the, the path to chaos. Uh, and so, yeah, like the, there's that, I mean, the nuclear, you know, the nuclear, uh, you know, the nuclear possibility is still there. I don't think, you know, I can make a case that it's not likely, but I think it's, you know, it still has a, uh, has a chance of happening. Um, and yeah, there's always the, uh, you know, unpredictability of it. So I, you know, the, the, the point would be that basically that, you know, the, the, there's been enough to enforce the norm so far and you could try to find some kind of way to end this thing. Yeah. You know, I was on, um, Israeli TV again today on this I-24 channel. I don't know if you've ever seen that or been <laughs> on it, but, um, it's, uh, <laughs> it's actually pretty interesting. Um, and the guy, they have like these debate style panels. And I was on with a Ukrainian parliamentarian woman who, I'm sorry, just repeats all the standard talking points, so it wasn't even really worth addressing. But there was another guy who was on who was uh, some sort of, he was Israeli or he's in Israel, and he had some prior affiliation with the Associated Press. I'm not even sure exactly who it was, but he was making the case that uh, only Putin can determine when the war comes to a close, right? So he's saying that it's 100% in Putin's purview to decide the war's cessation or continuation. Um, and he said, absent that, absent Russia being the one to make that decision to pull the plug, the only way the war can end is um, basically with regime change. Uh, he said, oh, and, they, and they talk about how, and even you even hear Ukraine officials talking about this where they're saying oh there could be a black swan event wink wink where there's like an uprising in russia or a military coup against putin i guess you know, my point is a lot of people seem to think that it's not even within the power of the united states somehow to really alter the course of the war at this point because it's just so totally dug in and i don't yeah so the only way the, the only way the only way to actually have a 
conclusion to it is for the government of Russia to be overthrown in some fashion, which is really remarkable. I mean, the idea that that would have been seen as the only viable way to attain some resolution would have been almost unfathomable at one point, but it's kind of become this newfound consensus. Yeah, I mean, Russia, I mean, Ukraine has a lot of resolve. So, like, if the, I mean, people have said, I mean, that, you know, like, even if the U.S. pulled back all its support, like, the war would still go on, because Ukraine would have basic, or Ukraine would have unlimited support from, like, Poland and some other neighbors, and it would want to fight on its own. So it would, I mean, it would, it would be, uh, you know, the, the the British would, so the British would support them. I mean, a lot of European countries would. Uh, so this thing kind of could potentially continue without the um, without the U.S. Russia would obviously be in a much better position. Uh, but it's not, you know, a sure thing that if U.S. pulled support, the whole thing would be over. It would like we don't even know what like what the what would the borders be, right? Because it would be like Russia would try to advance, and then it would probably be in a tougher situation than it was originally. I don't know. Maybe they would work out an agreement, or maybe it would go on. No way to yeah. All right. Let's go to uh, Andrew here. What up, Andrew? Hello, gentlemen. I called in with hey. like three different things to talk about that weren't Ukraine, and then that conversation is just so interesting. <laughs> well, it makes me, yeah. Well, you're you're the only caller at this point, so we can go on both <clears throat> topics if you want. Well, let me just start by. Or we saying can go on. Yeah, let me go quick. I'll start by saying Kanye on Alex Jones was quite interesting indeed. And I found the most hilarious part to me was when he refused to pronounce Benjamin Netanyahu's full name. He won't say Benjamin and he won't say Yahoo. He literally said this and then he said, I'm just calling him Netan. And he <laughs> reached down and pulled out. He Yes, he said Netan. And then he reached down and pulled out a butterfly net, an orange butterfly net, which he started waving around saying net. So he had an orange yeah. butterfly net on him <laughs> just to, in case yeah. Netanyahu came up? Oh, in, in case. I mean, he, he was going to make it happen. And, sure. a, and, a, okay. and a bottle of Yahoo, <laughs> Yahoo the drink. Or Yahoo, or whatever and it's called. Net and <laughs> Yahoo. The camera pan- Did he have a <laughs> bottle of Yahoo or, uh, chocolate yeah, drink? Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> Maybe I do need to watch this full you segment. Do. <laughs> and the camera pans to Alex Jones, and he's just staring at him, like, weirded out. And I'm sitting here like, what the fuck? Like, this is really surreal when Alex Jones is even, you know, <laughs> speechless, essentially. It's like a master entertainer himself. And- well, maybe it was a master a master stroke of, like, performance art shtick if he even flabbergasted Alex Jones. I mean, he brought a net. So, <laughs> I don't know what that tells you. He came prepared. But anyway... <laughs> I thought I thought that was hilarious, and uh, well, you're not allowed to find it hilarious. You're not allowed to find any humor at all, and that you're just supposed to issue grave denunciations. Well, they're going to fucking get 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 some Azov guys to come shut me up, I guess. (laughs) Hire some Ukrainians. Well, I mean, exactly. I mean, and and, you know, people get so furious when you raise that point. But I mean, it is true that Azov, and I know you know this, Andrew, when they were on this huge lobbying blitz in the United States in September and October, where they were literally auctioning off um, uh, Azov patches with the wolf's, wolf's angle as a prize to and raising money to for Azov in particular, meeting with members of Congress and not right. at all renouncing the you know literal Nazi iconography. Even but though we they were told they, went, they had this, old, this whole like PR rehabilitation where they were supposedly ditching that iconography, they didn't. Yeah. Well, does that even matter? I mean, and nobody cared about the like anti-Semitic dangers of that. <laughs> 
apparently there's no danger because they feel like he's they're controlled Nazis because they work for a Jewish man. Apparently, that's like all they need to say is you. Well, he works for someone who's Jewish. Oh, <laughs> that's a pretty simplistic way of looking at things, but okay. You know, <laughs> maybe if you understood right. the dynamics in Ukraine and what the power of violence can do, uh, you would Wait, so consider that mean, who works so, for who. So does that mean because because Barack Obama was the president of the United States for eight years that racism was eradicated? Well, you know, I just imagine Barack Obama going to the South and telling some Confederates to stop a war and them telling them to basically go screw off and what that yeah. would look like. Well, the, the, the entire the state is, would be bombed. The point is, very no one today, especially in that same sort of left liberal milieu, would make the argument that because the national leader of the United States happened to be a black man for eight years, that meant there was no anti-black racial sentiment in the United States that is not. worth concern. Uh, well, you know, this it's just weird. But, uh, yeah, the other stuff that wasn't really uh, related, I, other two topics are the Twitter uh, data, I guess, that, that they've been – certain people have been asking for information on the censorship that Twitter has been taking part in over the years. Have you heard about this? Well, didn't Musk, didn't this? Musk tweet that he was going to yeah. release that data? Very vague, as usual, yeah. right? But. And I mean, I just think that could be interesting and that should be a point of contention. It's funny how, you know, <laughs> all these billion dollar news corporations have no interest because, you know, <laughs> why would they? Right. They don't want to they don't want to look into that. But that's not an interesting story about who's been censoring Americans and why, you know, have, who what kind of FBI officials have been knocking on Twitter's door and telling people who should be uh, looked at and pulled aside and given a spanking. You know, that's I also uh, love the totally idea like okay, so Musk, story. you know, granted it's non-specific, but Musk does say that he has evidence and is going to soon release it in some form that Twitter had interfered in past elections. Now, of course, I would agree with not taking Musk at total face value. You want to see whatever the evidence is that he claims he has. You want to do an independent evaluation of it. But this idea that it should just be peremptorily dismissed, that Musk could have any legitimacy to what he's saying at all, is we're so ridiculous <laughs> well, at this point. I mean, the guy is like a self-declared centrist, right, who maybe said one thing nice about Ron DeSantis, and that means for the rest of time, nothing he ever says could have any veracity at all, even though, I mean, the, 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 these same people drive Teslas. I mean, it's the, the way Musk is now this bogeyman is really bizarre. It is bizarre, but, I mean, Trump's been quiet lately, and they're not on true social, so what are they going to do, right? Do you have the, any uh, interest? I'm sure you're interested as well, Richard, in the Twitter data coming out, potentially. Do you think this is going to uh, happen? No, I, I mean, I doubt it. It's, I don't know, it's too much, it feels like it's too much paperwork. I, you know, I think it'd be a good idea. It's like, you know, you could send a FOIA to the FBI, and ask them, like, you know, any file, what do you have on me? Like, I would love to do that for Twitter. Like, I've been deboosted a few times and then, you know, not deboosted anymore and had these, like, really retarded suspensions. And I'd like to know, like, you know, what sort of the process is. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the it's going to be – it's going to it's gonna alienate, I think. It would alienate like, – because the federal government has been involved in this. It's going to alienate them. Um, for a little gain, 
Um, and I don't know, like it's going to have to be selective because there's so much, right? There's like all, there's like, you know, years and years of work here. Um, yeah, I, I just, I don't know. I don't think, I don't think there's going to be, I don't know. Who knows? It could uh, be something uh, underwhelming. You know? I shouldn't make any prediction. I mean, Elon has surprised, I mean, Elon has surprised me during this whole thing. I mean, he's buying it. He's trolling people on Twitter. I mean, he's, you know, taking the free speech. Thing <laughs> he's replying to me for God's sake. He's yeah. yeah. He's really crossing the line. I mean, <laughs> forget Kanye. And he's bringing back. I mean, he's bringing you know, back he has people. no self-respect if he's replying to me. So all bets are off. Yeah, he's bringing back some people. I mean, there's all these like. Do you, you know this guy like E. Michael Jones? Uh, no. So he's like this like intellectual like Catholic anti-Semite like this guy. <laughs> oh, okay. The name is familiar, but yeah, he he he's written a lot of books. I don't know if he was a professor or something, but he's like written a lot of books. Um, he uh, um, he, you know, you, do you know that pickup guy Roosh? Yes, I know who that is. So Roosh was a pickup artist, but then fell under the spell of E. Michael Jones and became oh like God. a religious anti-Semite, basically. And so was is like, he in the up. American uh, American Renaissance crowd? Uh, Michael Jones. I don't think. I don't think. No, he's actually. He's not. No, he's. He's like anti. Like Jared Taylor. No, no, he doesn't like Jared Taylor. I, 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 because he's because he's not. He's he's anti-Semitic, but he's not like. Racist. Oh, okay. So, right, so he doesn't. He doesn't want to. He doesn't want to talk about. Like, All right. So there's an international like feud a, between them. Nice. He's yeah, Jared Taylor is like a little bit. Yeah, Jared Taylor is like friendly to the Jews. Actually, so that's funny. Uh, but no, this guy's. Yeah, and then, you know a lot of those guys are secular, and this this is about religion. So no, it's it's a completely different branch of uh, thing. So yeah, it's like yeah, Catholic like anti semite. That's like that's Eli Jones. But anyways, the point is this guy. You know he's prominent. Opus Dei like, type stuff. Huh? Like Opus Dei type stuff. Like some I don't, some I don't, obscure I don't know. Catholic order. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if he I don't know if he's uh, likes Opus Dei or whatever. But um, I don't know if Opus Dei is or like Mel Gibson's father. Yeah. Wasn't he the member of some the yeah, Catholic order yeah, that was anti-Semitic or seen to be? I've never heard. I've never heard E. Michael Jones like like I don't know. Like maybe that could be part of Opus yeah. Dei. I don't know. But the point is, this guy was suspe- had had been suspended from Twitter. He has like twenty five thousand, and he's back now, right? So somebody went and like found E. Michael Jones and said like, "Oh, this guy needs to come back." Um, and so that's that's interesting, right? That and is so like interesting. These, these Antifa are like getting kicked off, and there's other people like E. Michael Jones who are not not as big that I've seen. There's a guy named Patrick Casey. I don't know much about him. Yeah, I know he that guy. Like old, is he like all dried or white dash or something? Uh, he was a Daily Caller guy, if I'm not mistaken, or okay. he was sort of in more mainstream conservative media for a while, and then went sort of, you know, <laughs> then crossed a Rubicon. Yeah, and got sort of booted out. And yeah, I, so, sort of like a, rep- a Republican operative. Yeah, like, I think he might have helped. Um, they're saying he's, they're saying he was a he was a, he was unite the right, so he had gone he had gone that far. Uh, I don't remember if he was in unite the right or not. Maybe he was, but I just know he had crossed like a bit of a Rubicon where even like the Daily Caller couldn't countenance him anymore. Yeah, yeah. So he's back. Uh, okay, <laughs> it's odd that they're going out of their way to target these specific people that. Is he? Would it be fair to say he's fairly obscure? I mean, I uh, let me see how many uh, followers. He's what pretty obscure. He's pretty obscure. I mean, he's no. If you're like, if you're in, if you know those sorts of worlds, you might know him. But yeah, he wouldn't be. He wouldn't have broke broken through to more sort of popular uh, content. I just would love to know how is this list being formed? Like, where, where's the line? You know, oh, Patrick I mean? Casey follows me. Yeah, he's got seventeen thousand followers. So you know, he's not huge. Michael Jones has thirty. So these aren't like nobodies, but they're not like you know, they're not gigantic accounts either. Right. Well, 
I guess time will tell with Elon Musk. As you well, know, it could be. But I don't know. If, is Jared Taylor back? Do you know? Uh, no, I, I would have heard about it. I think. I, I think I would have seen that. Yeah, Jared Taylor. It's I, interesting. I've heard that people. I've heard that they they did some conference. Um, yeah. Where like there was some like Tennessee uh, or something. Yeah, but there was this. They were at a conference with like European Nazis, and I think there was some like State Department thing that went after American Renaissance. I don't know all the details of this, but this is I, this is what I heard. So it's like they're on some like super list. Like yeah, well, it could be. I don't know. This is speculation, but there were like in 2017, all of a sudden out of nowhere, there was like a mass banning of anybody of like Jared Taylor and anybody who was seen to be in that sort of alt-right cohort, kind of just one sort of sweeping ban that didn't seem at all sort of individualized or tailored toward the individual offender. So I wonder if maybe some of these unbannings are like going through certain instances of yeah. when the bans were issued so it's like oh like this particular episode of banning in december 2017 or whatever was particularly you know, would be egregious or unfounded so therefore we're going to unban anybody everybody who was swept up in that episode it would be it'll be the person i'll be interested in is stefan molyneux because he's oh, right, like somebody yeah. who was really really he was really huge yeah and he, he was. wasn't like he wasn't like the American Nazi Party. It's like it's not like he wasn't like an easy case to ban. He's like I think somebody who they had to you know they banned, but it wasn't like someone who was obvious that they would have banned. What did they ban um, him for? I forget now. Was it? Just, yeah, I don't know. Because he was overall just bad. Isn't there bad. supposed to be? Isn't there supposed to be a general amnesty anyway? That's what I he mean, said. Yeah, that's what that's he said. That's what he said. How would you? How would you make a general amnesty? Like how? Who would, knows? I guess, well, you could just turn it. Yeah, how would you do that? Um, the thing is, I, it's funny. You, you mentioned Stefan Molyneux. I had forgotten that guy existed, which just goes to show that these bannings are actually extremely effective. Yeah, in basically extirpating yeah. the targets. Look what it look what it did to Trump. Yeah, so yeah, Molyneux, Molyneux was the, Molyneux wasn't banned. Looks like until middle of twenty twenty. So that's pretty late. I mean, all these all these other you know. I think it might have been for COVID. I mean, his the the exact reason for his banning might have been something to do with COVID. Huh. Like he violated COVID, COVID misinformation rules or something. Yeah, I'm sure that that's. That I mean, me. so many people were guilty of that, and it could be for anything. You know, it could be for so many things. There, could do you have time for two more? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah, Assange, real quick. Why do you mm -hmm. think it is, both of you, that this is the time now that these news organizations have chosen to make a stand, even though they haven't pointed out any single change in evidence or their viewpoint? It's just like they woke up. And figured out this was happening and made this. Yeah, yeah I, don't know, remind I, me, I, haven't, I haven't looked that much into it. Yeah, what exactly did they do? A... I mean, remind me. Like the New York Times okay. did something. Is that right? It was a, a small grouping, and it's not strictly U.S. There were a couple international, like Spain and uh, U.K. outlet. <clears throat> I don't know the specifics, but the point is that these outlets, I think, like Washington uh, Wall Street Journal, maybe Washington Post, definitely New York Times. Places that used outlets that used his work basically yeah, came Guardian, out and I think, said was that in there. he should. Right, should they essentially said that? <clears throat> excuse me. They should uh, Biden regime, <laughs> Biden administration. Excuse me, should uh, drop its charges against Julian Assange immediately because he is uh, not guilty of a crime because publishing is not a crime is essentially what their argument boils down to. Uh, Katie Halper would be good to talk to about this because she uh, was 
she's got a lot of contacts with the Assange people and whatnot. Um, but it, I talked to her about it, and they, she was like, yeah, nothing's – they didn't give a reason as to why it is now after this – you know, you depends how you want to measure it. If it's three years since he's been in solitary or if you want to time, time since he's been in the Ecuadorian embassy. But, you know, why now? Yeah, there was – just, just, just to specify, there was a letter issued November 28th, and it's on, like, the New York Times corporate – Websites are not even really published initially anyway on the New York Times editorial side. It's like a corporate statement um, uh, calling on the U.S. government to end its prosecution of Julian Assange for publishing secrets. And it's the New York Times, The Guardian, Le Monde, Der Spiegel, El Pais. And yeah, and those are all the publications that, as I recall, uh, published, you know, worked with WikiLeaks in 2010 11 to publish um, like the Cablegate archives in the Iraq and Afghanistan uh, archives. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't really have a great explanation yeah, maybe for they why. Feel Russia's on, maybe all of a sudden, there was a way to stick it to Russia, and now they feel Russia's on the ropes. I don't know. Like maybe they, <laughs> yeah, it's it's maybe the enough like anger time has passed since the um, you know after 2016 it got crazy with like Russia and WikiLeaks and all this stuff. They were angry. Mm-hmm. Maybe enough time passed that they weren't angry anymore. Right? Or you know, <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I think enough time passed to, has passed now where Assange is not as you know emotionally know. tied to Trump. Or I just don't. I can't. Why? Like what? <laughs> What other? It's like the stink of that is so hard on him. He see people blame him. Like my, I have a close relative that I won't blame him for electing Trump. Exactly, and it's like a pathological. It's pathological. Maybe they view Trump as less of a like an acute. Maybe because they the like the consensus now is that Trump's political power has diminished. Although I'm sort of skeptical of that school of thought. But like maybe if they think that Trump is lessened in his basically political leverage that it's now acceptable to defend Assange because they don't don't think it's going to have like any material benefit to Trump. It was always, I mean, it was always a thing where like, you know, Obama, the Obama administration, like I I think they, they refused, they didn't prosecute Assange, right? Or they didn't get the extradition. They did. Right. Oh, that was, it was the Trump administration. Yeah. Yeah. It was the Trump administration. It was only in 2000, it was only in 2019 that Assange was indicted for alleged crimes stemming from 2010. I mean, liberals were all the, the, so the liberals weren't always just like go after Assange. They, they understood the implications. And you know they, they the the Justice Department has gone after like mainstream publications like people at Fox News and like uh, other places uh, for uh, uh, for the same for the exact same crime. So they understand that this is like this is actually uh, potentially harmful for them. This these precedents do matter. Yeah. So it's like yeah, it's like there there was a natural inclination not to like this prosecution. Now, twenty sixteen changed things, and it was you know the you know uh, WikiLeaks and the Trump and the, you know the Trump and the Russian connection and all this stuff. But yeah, I mean it's not you know it's not the most shocking thing in the world that they would uh, sort of go back to that position after the time. Of there also was there also was some memo issued by Merrick Garland over the summer instructing prosecutors not to bring charges that could compromise. You know, journalistic integrity in certain respects or, you know, criminalize, try to like obtain sources of investigative journalists. Now, it remains to be seen how 
robustly that would be enforced or maybe it was just for show, but at least there was ostensibly a memo issued to that effect that like at least purported to change the department of justice's, you know, posture toward the sorts of prosecutions that could infringe on journalistic freedom, because that kind of plays into this whole defending democracy type ethos, which the Democrats and their sort of media allies, you know, claim to uphold. That was sort of the, the, the conceit of the midterms, right, where the, the Republicans were the ones who were abridging all these core uh, democratic freedoms or whatever. And I don't know, so maybe it could stem from that, but I don't know. What's your theory, Andrew? I'm way more cynical than you, both of you are, about this, because I think either he's about to die in prison and they want to get out ahead of it and basically say that they were defending him and they're, you know, the saviors. I don't see him coming to the U.S. and not being charged. I don't see the Biden administration dropping this because I don't believe at the core it's a purely political prosecution. I believe it strictly is uh, a surface level thing uh, about, you know, the political aspect, which is the mechanism on how they uh, instruct people to hate him. But the, the deep state, quote unquote, dislikes him for other reasons and they're not partisan. And yeah, well. Biden, when he was vice president, famously went on Meet the Press in 2010, I think it was, and declared that Assange was a, quote, high-tech terrorist. And, How uh, can they back down now? Yeah, I don't see, I mean, I don't see any indication that Biden has so, changed his view on that. The administrations won't. It doesn't matter who's in charge, in my opinion. And uh, it could be Bernie Sanders, for all I care. And uh, the, 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 the news outlets, basically, I see this as just cover your own ass. You know, get out ahead of it before he dies in Belmarsh or if he's brought over and you, you can say you supported him. Yeah. I don't discount these cynical and I don't discount a cynical interpretation because everything, I mean, I'm just scanning this letter now. Everything written here could have been written in April of 2019 when the indictment came down. So why have they waited two and a half years and could that's the thing or three and a half years. Someone needs to talk to one of these editors or one of these people about is what, oh, what changed? You know, you woke up on the right side of the bed and finally got yeah. over your grumpy attitude about Julian and thought, oh, maybe press freedom is important. Like, are we that childish or is there something else? Did you just it's it's, you know, it's, it's no, it's a good question. I mean, there should be somebody who has some access to some of these journalistic outlets that could figure it out. Yeah, I've been um, asking around, but who the hell knows? <laughs> yeah, maybe I'll uh, I'll see if I can find figure find anything. Okay, and then uh, I guess yeah. Ultimately, I would just say that I think Ukraine. Uh, sorry, <laughs> getting ahead of myself. I think Julian Assange is going to become a a martyr because I do think he's going to die in prison, or he'll be brought to the U.S. and tried. And if he is tried, I hope there's a protest at the facility because I don't know. I just don't see a way out for him. Like I said, the state's going after him. Well, it's there not, are, there are like there are fairly trouble. substantial protests still in London every so often outside Belmarsh. Um, you know, Corbyn has spoken at them. Who you know, of course, Corbyn has been ostracized within even the Labour Party, if, as people know. I would think um, so. It's not like there's the most high profile supporters of, or the most uh, supporters of Assange that would come out to this protest that are seen to be in good stead, right, by the mainstream. But you know, Corbyn is still enough of a figure that it does bring some degree of attention uh, in these uh, London protests, but it's very hard to imagine an equivalent protest happening in the U.S. where, you know, the left 
organized left, at least the uh, figureheads of it in elected office, would dream of like speaking at a pro Assange oh. protest. Like, I mean, Bernie Sanders right. would wouldn't get caught dead. Nope, it would only be right wingers. We've talked about this before. Unfortunately, be Thomas Massey, and that's about it. Maybe, but yeah, there. Uh, anyway, well, Tulsi might depressing. do it, but I don't know if people consider her. Oh, yeah. People probably would consider sure. her a right winger at this point. Well, I suspect she would very heavily politicize it and blame Biden exclusively at this point. She's full-fledged going uh, – my attitude on her soured quite a bit in terms of – I feel like she's just decided that the GOP is her vehicle to power now. She's not going to get politically elected. She needs to be appointed if that's even possible because it's not going to happen with elections for her. So I, that's just how I'm looking at it. But uh, the last thing, I guess, is on Ukraine, um, that steel man thing. I get your argument, Michael, but from my perspective, the other thing you could say is that what they're doing hasn't worked because Ukraine has lost territory. Russia is going to keep the territory. And so it's actually not working ultimately, even though you mean Richard, you mean, you mean you get what Richard's argument is in terms of the steel man or mine? Because I was um, challenging the steel man argument. You, you, I agreed with your challenging of it, but I have a different perspective okay. on why it's wrong, essentially. And I think that the argument is more direct. And it's, it's like, yes, they're violating a principle, but with, I don't believe they have a principle. But if you're going to say they have a principle, I just don't think it furthers the principle that arming Ukraine is going to save them or prevent further incursions by either Russia or China or other uh, foreign adversaries in the future. You know, long story short, Ukraine is going to lose territory. Russia is going to achieve its goals. That's my long-term view of the conflict, long and short of it. And the lesson... Yeah, actually, you know, come to think, just on that really quickly, you know, this is actually sort of an interesting point, Richard. I'm curious what you make of it. Let's just stipulate that Mearsheimer is correct when he says the initial aim of Russia was never to conquer territory, right? And only when the objectives of Russia escalated as the war dragged on, culminating in September when Putin gave that speech about the annexation of the four oblasts, did Russia come to declare it as an official objective to conquer territory or annex those oblasts. Um, so, I mean, you could imagine that if there had been no American uh, intervention on the scale that ha- has occurred and Russia just kind of achieved its aims quickly and uh, kind of coerced Ukraine to um, declare military neutrality or you know, repudiate uh, its intent to join or integrate with NATO, then – there might not have been a seizure of territory in the way that came to be the case once the war aims escalated. So in that sense, maybe U.S. support to Ukraine actually was antithetical to its stated intent of, you know, preventing these sorts of seizures of territory because it perversely or ironically created a situation where Russia expanded its (laughs) war aims and, seize some territory that it might not have seized absent right. the U.S. support. Which may continue. I mean, that strikes me as, I don't know why he would think that. I mean, if Russia wants to go to Kiev, um, I don't know, Are they? is Putin not the kind of guy who likes to take territory? I mean, there's a history of that uh, annexing territory for Ukraine, so I don't know why he would think that 
they wouldn't take it. Well, Mearsheimer says they, I mean, there was never any evidence that Russia well, planned I mean, to seize the, the territory because in, in large part there was just simply nowhere near enough troops initially dispatched what? to actually what seize if, the territory. It was just a matter of coercing Kiev into uh, capitulating to Russia's demand to repudiate NATO. Yeah, but there was there was there wasn't enough troops to do that either. I mean, so like obviously they cal- miscalculated somehow. Uh, you know, there wasn't enough troops for what they were doing. That's that's true, I, but I, you know, yeah. I, I, that doesn't mean that that doesn't mean they weren't trying to do something. It's like I don't think they woke up and said, "Okay, now we're gonna now we're gonna take territory." No, I think I think what the stuff that they could take and they could hold. Um, yeah, I think they would have. They would have been happy to annex at least. But I think it was going to be Donetsk and Luhansk. Uh, obviously, I mean those 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 uh, territories declared independence. Russia was the only state that recognized them. And then, uh, yeah, they were. Well, North Korea did too. Ukraine, no. Okay, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, they weren't going to give. If the war was successful, they weren't going to give that back. I don't know if Mersheimer thinks that. If he thinks that, it was that's crazy. If the war expands to Odessa, will this point be proven correct, though? If what? If the war expands to Odessa and eventually Russia... Will what point Odessa, be proven correct? That that the war has expanded, the territorial war has expanded. Well, we don't beyond. know. I mean, there's people who think that Russia's from the start, uh, wanted to take... Wanted to, like Anatoly Karlin, who's a Russian national... Yeah, Novo Russia. Yeah, right. he, 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 well, he, yeah, he thought they wanted to annex all of Ukraine. Um, so like, I think, I think they would have, I think they would have just, including the far West. It seems like they'd just be taking a headache on with like the far West. That's that's what I, Anatoly's thought that they want to annex the whole of Ukraine, including like Lviv. Yeah. They thought they just was going to, they're just going to call it, you know, like these, these people, these Russian nationalists, like Anatoly and others, they thought the Ukrainian military was the biggest joke in the world. They didn't have any respect for it at all. So they thought it was like, it was nothing, like as soon as Russia, and they were wrong, and who knows, maybe Putin fought like the same way those guys did. Um, but Well, he fired know. a bunch of intelligence people right after that failed, if you recall. So I think you're right about that, Richard. And I think that it was, uh, I mean, and to be fair, this whole, oh, look, Russia's being humiliated. If the U.S., if you put the U.S. in their shoes and you had them fighting people with what they have, which is like B-tier NATO equipment, you know, it's not all A-tier, S-tier stuff, but it's B-tier NATO equipment with a very motivated, fairly large army. Do you think we'd be doing great if we didn't nuke them, if we didn't immediately flatten them, like, you know, with no humanitarian regard? Of course we'd be facing a stiff challenge and a stiff resistance. Because it's serious armaments, it's serious equipment, it's not goat herders, it's people dropping bombs on your head all day with drones and airplanes and artillery, and that's not even to to talk about U.S. intelligence helping them with targeting and all that kind of thing. Yeah, actually, the 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 thing I might object to the most in Richard's Steelman article is like the first paragraph, and we've, we've been over this before, I guess, in various forms, but... When you say, if I was, of course, wrong like everyone else was in overestimating the competence and the capabilities of the Russian military, well, I mean, you say everyone else was wrong. I don't know. I mean, I never really had a strong conviction one way or another on that because I don't have the data. I mean, I don't really have the any – I never had reason to have this faith in the preeminent power of the Russian military to overtake – Ukraine, especially if Ukraine is being backed by the world's number one right. military hegemon. Nobody I don't know. I just knows. didn't. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I just tend to think that that 
misplaced conviction seemed to stem inordinately from like selective CIA leaks still where who knows if they were actually in good faith projecting that they authentically believed that Kiev would actually fall in three days because within like a matter of really a, within a matter of a week they started using the amazing resilience and tenacity of Ukraine as demonstrated on the battlefield to justify the escalation of U.S. Arms, armament well, provision. no, actually, I mean, I think they were, their interest was to say the opposite because it was like a good reason to think it was hope that, like, you think Ukraine, you think if Ukraine hears on the news that, like, they're going to fall in three days, that's, like, going to make them fight better. It was probably, like, terrible for Ukraine's morale. I mean, it probably made it more likely that they would uh, fight. So I don't buy, I don't buy that. You're right. It could be, like, a thing where it's like, oh, it could, when they fight, it could make them better. But you have to think of, like, what is the actual. Like, what, what, what do people in Europe think if you tell them that, you know, Kiev is going to fall in three days? What do people in Ukraine think? Well, no, 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 what, what I'm saying is it, it was the U.S., once it planted this notion that Kiev was going to fall in three days and Ukraine heroically overcame that, uh, overcame it and showed its tenacity and resilience – Ukraine defying these so supposed expectations was then cited as the justification for why the U.S. needed to ramp up its provision of armaments. Remember when the war first started, it was sort of portrayed that as the U.S. only going to was only going to be sending like very minimal defensive aid and humanitarian aid, you know, a few javelins here and there and some small arms. Then, you know, once Ukraine demonstrates its resourcefulness, then all of a sudden it becomes the U.S. is basically furnishing an entirely new military to Ukraine. And who's to say that wasn't the objective all along on the part of the U.S.? Because that would have been a stupid plan because you would have – you don't say – you don't. You usually don't want to say that your side is going to collapse or the people on your side. That's bad for morale. You want to think you have a chance. To say you have no chance is the worst possible thing, even though like, oh, if you do – if they do resist, then things look good. Like, okay. But like you're starting out from a point like where you're making that outcome less likely because you're telling them like – we have no chance. Okay, why should Europeans support them? Why should the Ukrainians fight? Why should they just uh, capitulate? Right. But couldn't I mean? Couldn't like, you imagine? Any, couldn't you, you at all? Any military in the middle of a war saying we're you know we're losing? What do they do? The, do militaries and countries do they more often say we're losing or we're winning? Like does Russia say you know we're losing? Most of the time they say they're winning because that's, well they said this before the war started. Yeah, I mean, but, but couldn't you also like see that? Say, couldn't you also see that like emboldening Ukraine to like sh- uh, show, prove everyone wrong, and show their tenacity? Well, it's, um, probably. Not. I mean, no. I, I think that. I think that's the least likely outcome. I mean, I think it that's sets like, the bar low. Well, I, I guess I still, I still don't fully buy the full sincerity of those projections because they were so automatically used. I, I remember it happening within hours, even. Where it was declared that Ukraine had defied expectations and therefore the uh, external support had to be ramped up immediately. If, well, if, you know, they could, they would have said support anyway, right? If they would have said Ukraine could actually hold on, but with U.S. help, that would have been a better case for aid, right? They almost made it like, it was like, what's the point? Like, they made the aid, the case for aid, like, weaker. And well, so, like, either, either way, I don't, I also don't buy that everyone overestimated Russian capacity. I think the correct posture at that time was like epistemic humility about the utter chaos and unpredictability of war. At least that was what I tried to subscribe to. I think that we have good evidence from just like what various people thought. Like, I think we, I I don't see any reporting. Like, do you think like the whole like, 
I don't see any reporting that any intelligence agency thought that the Ukrainians would hold out and Russians would never take Kiev, right? And maybe it's all conspiracy. Like, all the Europeans got together and said, we're going to tell the newspapers. But we're not going to have any source leak. Intelligence agencies are full of shit most of the time. And that's why I also don't buy that. But what they thought, like, it would have got out if if there was, like, if, you know, are we just being lied to on what every single one of them thought? Like, it doesn't matter if they're right or wrong. And that's another thing, Richard. I mean, why are we to view that the, why are we to view the the pre-war predictions of the U.S. as having been this historic vindication of the the uh, competence of the intelligence services, if, as you also claim, they were a one hundred percent wrong in their predictions as to the course of the war? Yeah, they were wrong there. They, had, they were. That's right a on pretty the big. That's a pretty big uh, screw up. Yeah, that's true. Anyway, all right. Thanks, Andrew. Um, Let's go quickly. Uh, okay. Uh, yes. Yeah, so, we're going to say one last thing is that okay, Russia's yeah. lesson that they learned. Putin said in his address to the mothers of the, the veterans that he should have invaded earlier, essentially, and that that it's as bad as it is because of the buildup. So the, my yeah, last that. point on the the why this is not good is that the lesson it gives to your opponent, and that could be China as well, when they think about well, how hard would it be for the U.S. to continuously supply Taiwan compared if we nip it into the bud now? It's an island nation, like basically, like you know, there's things to consider in terms of those implications, which I just don't think anybody thinks about because it's this narrative that oh, Russia's losing so hard, no one would ever try this again. When if you just listen to them, they're saying it's this bad because we let it go this far. And right. we should not make this mistake again. And they're actively organizing with other nations to form military alliances. What do you think that's for? You know what I mean? Is that well, just right. I mean, actually, if you look at there was there was a Senate. Uh, deliver- we still don't have the full the final um, NDAA that's coming out this month. Um, but there was this major revision of the basically Taiwan Relations Act inserted as a provision into the upcoming basically defense appropriations bill and uh, under the aegis of Bob Menendez earlier this fall. And if you look at what the individual senators were talking about, I mean, Mitt Romney in the, um, I think it was the armed services committee or the, no, the foreign relations committee was saying that he supports on principle, basically removing some of the ambiguity around us support for Taiwan. But he also worries that if we go as far as Menendez wanted to go, which they ultimately did with a little bit of a modification, then that could actually incentivize China to accelerate its timetable to launch an incursion into Taiwan because of the similar to what you said that Russia now apparently believes where if they had done it sooner, then there would have been fewer, lesser capacity for Ukraine to resist. So, I mean, if it's true that Taiwan, that China does plan at some point to launch a full incursion to Taiwan, you would think it would be rational to do it sooner rather than later before the right. accelerated buildup is, uh, is, you know, facilitated by the U.S. is kind of reaches a point where it would be a major strategic problem for China to successfully launch the operation. Yes, it's wrenching it up closer, in my opinion. And who pays the price? Because ultimately, do we fight China? Do we fight Russia? No. We walk away. We say, well, good try, guys. Slap you on the, what's left of your back after you've been blown up by Russian artillery and say, sorry, you know, it's the Kissinger thing about being an enemy of the U.S. is dangerous. To be an ally is uh, fatal or suicidal or whatever. It's essentially that we're walking away. We're not going to really defend these places, but we are making it more likely and, in fact, bringing into reality in the case of Ukraine that these places are being invaded. 
Well, I don't know. I mean, I think it remains to be seen what the U.S. is actually willing to do with regard to Taiwan. They had a big NATO meeting that was reported yesterday by the Financial Times, the first time that NATO had met specifically to game out strategy on China. Because remember, they, for the first time this year, declared China basically an official target, as I learned firsthand at the NATO summit this year. Anyway, uh, thanks, uh, Andrew. Let's go to Gator, and then we'll we'll, uh, wrap up after that. Um... And Gator. I'm trying to go to Gator, and okay, there we go. All right, hey Gator. Hey guys, how's it going? All right, how are you? Yeah, not too bad, thanks. Um, just on the sort of Ukrainian stuff, I'm kind of a bit more in Andrew's camp, to be honest. But I mean, the EU today has literally pretty much just admitted that um, Ursula von Leyen had um, an admission of a hundred thousand Ukrainian deaths of armed forces deaths cut out of her speech. Right, so she admitted it. I saw that, yeah. Um, yeah, and then sorry, uh, Med- Medvedev uh, mocked her for it. Yeah, so I mean, you know, those numbers are according to, well, you know, take it or leave it, Western military uh, analysts, analysts who are a little bit off the beaten path, they don't reckon Russia's suffered a hundred thousand um, deaths amongst their ranks, and um, you know, what, what are we looking at? I mean, Richard sort of. I said this last time I spoke to you that that, they, that these um, analysts point out that this game now isn't isn't as far as they can tell about territory, and I think um, I may have been slightly misinterpreted when I said it because in in sort of what is now positional warfare, you know, with a build up of, of Russian troops, somebody like Brian Balletic will point out that we simply can't ship enough ammo and gear and get it there to the front line. Plus, we can't really compensate adequately for the loss of mad men. And then, and ultimately, once, once I mean, Russia's already sort of making pressure movements and back moot and all of these other points on the line. And we just haven't really seen yet them go up, go, go into absolute massive um, assault mode once they get all their ground forces in place. But they have gone. I mean, and this is the thing about... The way the, the the wars was characterized I, I you mentioned that at the beginning you know what were they trying to do well they did almost achieve what they wanted which was to get Zelensky to negotiate until the Brits came along and the US and said no don't bother we can we'll send you tons of tons of support and we've been supporting them since 2015 I think we've been officially training them and, and Trump was sending her weapons and armor and money to them throughout his regime so um, it's not like um, they weren't a, a pretty much a, a ready-made pseudo-NATO force by the time we went in there. So, you know, I don't think people's people's characterization seems to be that there's there was a clear plan of of a multi-stage plan, um, and 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 that's I think you mentioned last week. You know, it's difficult to know. You know, people's military analysis after the, after the fact in hindsight is always to you know questionable and i agree with that but they went in managed to get a negotiative uh, a position on the role then we come along and say don't bother doing that we'll back you sending in weapons and we extend the war that is all published in the rand corporations over overextending russia strategy which was printed in at least 2017 ish so none of what we're doing is not in a playbook somewhere right and the thing that Russia seems to me to have had to do is it's gone from uh, what we should remember is that it never recognized the DPR or LPR ever. 
throughout all of it, Minsk, everything, it wanted to, to not recognize those territories at all and said, keep it all within Ukraine's borders, use these agreements to sort yourselves out and, 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 and basically come to an agreement. It only officially recognized DPR and LPR days before it went in, in order to have that, that legal pretext that therefore it had a right to defend those independent nations. And that's, that to me is a sort of a key detail because Russia wasn't interested in taking territory as soon as it could have done. It could have done it. It could have essentially made these territorial arguments as soon as an independence um, movement began in the DPR and LPR, which it didn't do for eight, eight years. So I think that now it's simply a case of Russia has gone into, obviously, full-scale war mode, which which messes with the entire Western narrative. Well, yeah, let me just add something really quickly. I don't know if you saw yeah. this, but I saw, I was, uh, every now, I try to scan the um, Ukraine Pravda website, mm. the uh, news site, um, which seems like semi-reliable, at least for the most part, for insight onto what the media sit, uh, discourse is in Ukraine. And uh, they say that according to Ukraine military intelligence, and again, keep yeah. grain of salt there, but what they are projecting is that in January, there's going to be another round of mobilization by Russia, mm-hmm. um, you know, seemingly tied to the one-year anniversary of the war. So who knows if that'll happen or not. Um, but yeah, it seems like you're probably right in that all signs point to a very large-scale escalation in terms of how existential Russia views the war and how the resources that they are willing to deploy for it, at least as time goes on. Yeah, I mean, do we, but I don't think it's, it's serious to entertain the idea that from the beginning, Russia ever wanted to annex the entire country. I mean, you're talking about the second, maybe the, the second largest country in Europe, right? And it only put 200,000 men in to do that job. It was no way it was ever going after the full country. And I think that if it had, if we had not backed Zelensky and convinced him to go and publicly say, right, election, um, sorry, negotiations are off, then the war wouldn't have taken the form. And it didn't even do a full offensive into Kiev ever. I mean, yeah, exactly. the convoy that surrounded it as like a coercion tactic, seemingly, yeah. to extract diplomatic concessions. And the first time that there were ever even airstrikes onto, into central Kiev, like around the government offices, was in um it was either in october or november like one of the one of the rounds of strikes yeah. that occurred relatively recently exactly and and people talk people talk with like a warped memory of like exactly what were they doing around kiev they had a massive column on the outside of uh, towards kiev and they were had some 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 skirmish conflict around the perimeter as far as i could tell and Basically, Scott Ritter's points points out. Well, this is this is a basically maneuver warfare. So you pin a load of forces in one place by having forces in Kiev, and that stops you reinforcing the east. And they and and then look at what Russia actually did. Russia knew that all of the far right extremist Azov battalion groups and other professional military were moving east under orders to attack and have a massive 60,000 strong force attack the DPR and LPR. That's all published orders. Russia released those orders that they found from 
um, the in Ukra Ukrainian and may have never been disputed from the sources I can find, but they have never been really reported in the West. And when you look at like the military tactic that they then used, they knew that if they came in from three sides, they were able to kettle people in the northern and eastern side, people in the southern and eastern side and people in the far eastern side. That's exactly what they did. And they basically annihilated up to 100,000 men by doing it. And so, you know, th that would close the east. I thought they'd probably draw a line down Kiev and just cut the, cut, cut the country there. Maybe that's what they'll do in the end. But the point about whether the, what they wanted to take as territory at the beginning doesn't match the fact that they have not used any combat tactics that they're now employing because they should because if they wanted territory they could have just done what they're doing now back at the beginning and they and they haven't i think they've had to just yeah. evolve and that's and consistent then, and then, with think, and that's consistent with uh Mearsheimer's view yeah and 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 also the there's a point that somebody made it probably was Ritter because he seems to be well attuned to sort of russian mentality having spent a lot of time there he he speaks freely about this He's pointed out that he thinks, he thought a long time ago, maybe four or five months ago, that once Russia was basically having to spill blood over wider territory, then basically would say, fuck it, we're taking that. If we if we literally have to lose men over further movement to the east, then we'll take that. And that's kind of preceded the referenda. So maybe he's, maybe his characterization is right. But, um, but I, I just sort of think that we forget what where, where the war started and the, the, the physical impossibility compared to what's going on now they're radically different and um i just i just think that as i said last week um that we're going to end up with um probably like the western center smashed to pieces um and and with with a with a reconstruction bill that ultimately will come from all of your uh, russia's stolen um appropriated foreign reserves which so which which gets to the whole thing which kind of gets to one of the counter arguments i sort of tentatively raised with richard if the if the idea is that the steel man case for supporting ukraine is to preserve the principle around the inviolability of territorial integrity well you can imagine what seems to be a potentially plausible scenario whereby if there hadn't been such a flush of U.S. and Western support right off the bat and the coercion tactic of Russia worked with the column of tanks around Kiev initially and they did successfully extract the diplomatic concession that they seemingly mm -hmm. sought to, then uh, who knows if that would have resulted in the same sorts of violations of territorial integrity that people now claim it, claim it uh, they're so incensed by with the annexations of the Oblast and stuff. Maybe all that would have been preempted. Well, this, this notion of sovereign territory, Michael, right? At what point do you say that a sovereign territory should essentially be able to fight its battle on its own two feet up until the point it can't and then it enters negotiation? Because that's essentially how war is prosecuted, right? We are now literally now being held to ransom by this nation, um, by the well, sorry, by the political narrative around this conflict, saying we have to pay literally the entire operational costs of that country, including national, um, you know, governmental bills, you know, and not to mention yeah. the stuff we're pumping in there. Right, we're paying for the operation of that state. That state is not right. Like as you as you mentioned, not just the military um, expenditures, but just you know, paying the public employees' salaries and pensions. Yeah. 
Is that and, you know, they, and there was another there was another tranche of aid announced by the U.S. just uh, within the past week or so around the uh, electrical and uh, power infrastructure, um, which you know is not a strictly military provision. But yeah, yeah, I mean that's another good point actually, which I should have mentioned. The whole sort of uh, platitude around the inviolable nature of territorial integrity is belied by, or at least of the agency of Ukraine and the autonomy of Ukraine that needs to be respected at every turn. It's belied by how the United States is basically the provider of sovereignty. It's the provider of the so-called agency of Ukraine. It's only by way of the agency, quote-unquote, of the United States that Ukraine can even purport to have this agency that supposedly is exercising. So it almost makes no sense if to kind of uh, pontificate about the um, untouchable agency of a particular country, if that country is wholly reliant on another country for Correct. the preservation of... Yeah, I mean, with thereby the grace of the US goes, goes Ukraine, basically. And so and what, what stage are we at now? We are now at an open admission of not only really high Ukrainian casualties, which meets which actually is the game of demilitarization. Demilitarization is not the taking of territory, it's grinding out through attrition and whatever else. Um, the military, which is basically what Russia sounds, seems to have always said it was doing. Yep. It's just doing it in a different way. All right, now, well, uh, I'm sorry, I was just going uh, to uh, wrap up with you, Gator. Hmm. Appreciate the, uh, the comments. Going to go to... Uh, John and uh, Richard, if you have to go, yeah, uh, feel I free. Gonna, I thought we were wrapping up, but okay, I'll I'll go and Mike, you can continue. All right, hey John, hey, hey how are you? Um, can you hear me? Yeah. Um. So yeah, uh, Gator made a lot of really good points. Um. Are you the that, guy in New Jersey? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Okay, so we talked before. Uh huh. Um, um. Kiev was never, ever, ever at the beginning an objective uh, objective of Russia, like. It's it, it's absolutely ridiculous to even think it was. There are things that Russia has wanted, like Odessa, things that were more on the water, things like that. But Kiev was never on that. They literally wanted to go in there, put up a pressure campaign to to get them to go to the negotiation tables. And they gambled on that. And that's what Putin thought was going to happen. And he was wrong about that. He thought that he was going to be able to do that. And the negotiation that they wanted was, the demilitarization of Ukraine, meaning that like no more of the like Azov battalion, no NATO, anything like that. They wanted independence for the two Donbass, the Donbass areas, the, uh, those two ones, the DPR and the LPR. And he wanted a recognition, uh, recognition of uh, Crimea. Right. And they had that. And they had that on April 1st when they were in Turkey. And all of a sudden, just as Gator said, the Brits and the Americans came in there and they made uh, Zelensky recant all of the stuff that he had promised. Well, and this and is when and this is when the Buka incident uh, was first publicized that then was used to declare that it's no longer remotely viable to negotiate with you know a genocidal maniac like Putin, as evidenced by the Buka incident, or at least that's how it was presented. Right. But but the point being is, is that so at that point, like from there, like so once that didn't happen and that that whole entire negotiation blew up, the Russians were kind of like in 
almost like caught in disbelief. And at that point, they had no idea that that was going to ever be that, – that's such a rare thing to have occurred just as a general rule of conflict. But then to have that happen and then to have tens of billions of dollars pumped into Ukraine like by America and by um, Europe and also not, a, in, not in any way in Europe's best interest. So to have all of that stuff happen, they basically were like running around with like chickens with their heads cut off until about, you know, midsummer – or to the end of the summer, and then there was that Ukrainian offensive, I think it was like in September or whatever, and at that point they said, you know something, we can't do this anymore, they brought in Solovikin, the new general, and they said, we're doing this for real. And that's this whole mobilization effort, which as soon as the ground gets hard, and they always, you, you'll hear that all the time, but I mean, we're like days away from the ground getting hard, alright, and when, when they say the ground gets hard, there has to be permanent under freezing temperatures for 14 days in a row. That started like five days ago, all right? The second it gets to like 14 days, we're in, it can go off any day after that. And now it's when they have their real amount of people in there with real fortifications and real armaments and the, like what's go- happening right now. Like, and just, 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 to, just to interject really quickly, this is why I understand this notion that I hear floated often, which is that this winter is going to be a lull in the fighting. I always thought that the winter would actually be prime opportunity, that was seen as the prime opportunity for fighting because the ground was frozen, right? The lull was, I thought, supposed to be the portions of the seasons when the ground was muddy and you couldn't transit heavy equipment as easily. You're you're 100% right. Russia's playing it down because they had made mistakes in their calculations about what was going to bring people to the table and stuff. So they don't want to just now come off and say, we're definitely going to be able to win by like early in the winter because they don't want to, you know, be cocky about it, like for lack of a better word. But I mean, I think it's going to be a catastrophe. Um, My biggest fear, honestly, right now is like, why isn't there some sort of before the railroads go down, before all the means of getting people the hell out of Kiev go down, like there should be an absolute effort to be getting women, children, old people, people that are hurt the hell out of these areas now. Because if it starts up, it's you're not going to get them out, and we're going to have a human like a. Well, real didn't you humid. didn't Ukraine didn't Ukraine order a partial at least evacuation of I think it might have been Kherson or one of the recently recovered territories by Ukraine? They actually off, uh, ordered themselves an evacuation. If I'm yeah, not but mistaken. I mean, like like they they have, but I'm talking about like Mayor Klitschko in Kiev. Like a third of the city doesn't have hot water now. All right. Like going into the winter, like you can't have senior citizens, you can't have children, you can't have people that are in like bad health in a scenario like that. Like you have to make an effort to get them out before the means of like transportation are completely like destroyed. And if nothing else, like it's very and and this is something that every single country would do being put into this. It's not a sign that you're weak. It's nothing like that. You get vulnerable people the hell out of harm's way and it's it's very sketchy that they're not because what it kind of shows is that hmm, maybe we'll just leave them there because it'll kind of bring more sympathy and keep the collective west involved and all that sort of crap but the reality is is that we like they are in such deep trouble and it's so disgusting like you know i i love america you know and all this sort of stuff, but i i'm so disgusted that we're perpetuating something that is just killing young men that has no chance of success and that they're doing it in such a way where, you know, they're not even taking the most basic, basic steps to like save people that are vulnerable. 
You know what I mean? And that's just like, that's like one of the most like, it, like one of the most disgusting things I've seen in real time, like probably my entire life. You know, I, I didn't realize like the war in like Iraq was going to be the thing it was. I, I, I believe the bullshit about the mobile labs and stuff. But this I'm seeing in real time, and it's very, very upsetting. Like, just from, like... Yeah, you know, when I was in... Uh, I went to uh, Poland uh, on the border with Ukraine, right, when the war started, and I was at a rest stop on the highway um, near the border, and I noticed a car uh, with two women in it with Ukraine uh, license plates that was headed back in the direction of Ukraine, right, to cross the border back over into Ukraine. This was in March. And I asked the women um, what they were doing. I mean, they were, and they were saying that they were just going to go back into Ukraine because they couldn't really justify not being there any longer and, like, just having this, like, refugee-type status in Poland because they lived in this portion of western Ukraine, I think it was like a suburb of Lviv, where there wasn't any fighting, right? I mean, there wasn't a huge amount of acute danger to them at that point. So there would be irony if that, if, um, you know, that massive exodus in the early phase of the war was actually less necessary to preserve, you know, the humanitarian fortunes of the that of portions of the vulnerable Ukraine population, uh, whereas there is no there is no comparable exodus now when it seems like Russia could be actually gearing up to do something that would have threatened people like that who you know who re-entered Ukraine. Well, like you know, when people say like, okay, if they're really like gearing up to do it, you don't mobilize just from a like financial standpoint. You don't mobilize three hundred thousand troops and bring them over and put that sort of like money and effort into something and then not use it. Like that doesn't happen. So like something's going to happen. It's just to what degree, how fast, you know, if there's any glitches in it. But like this is dead serious. Like there, there's like you're way past the point where it would be financially acceptable to not go forward with it from the right. Russian side. Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, uh, what do you think, uh, John? What do you think of? Uh, what do you make of the Republican majorities? Um, sorry, I'm hearing feedback on your your side. Uh, what do you? Yeah, just 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 mute yourself for a second if you don't mind. It's the bottom left. Yeah, I was just wondering what you make of the incoming Republican uh, House majority's posture on Ukraine funding, because I'm sure you remember that we were all warned in such fevered terms that because Kevin McCarthy made this fleeting comment about no blank check, Ukraine, that meant that Republicans were gearing up to the, at the first available opportunity just immediately rescind all U.S. provision to Ukraine, which it seems like total oh, it seemed like total garbage to me from the very outset. And I think we talked about this, but I did a bunch of reporting on um, certain Republican candidates for Congress and what their actual views were on Ukraine and whether it comported with this idea that they were going to all of a sudden, totally uh, upend the U.S. policy and just really did not have any uh, bearing on reality. I think a lot of this stems from 
this like exaggerated import that's described to people like Marjorie Taylor Greene as though she's like setting the agenda for the Republican caucus. Um, you know, there was this uh, delegation that was sent to the Halifax Security Summit last week or maybe it was the week before where both Republicans and Democrats in equal measure went and, you know, fulsomely reaffirmed U.S. support for Ukraine and even the incoming chairs of the House Armed Services Committee, the House uh, Foreign Relations Committee, and the House Intelligence Committee. So Mike McCall, uh, Mike Rogers, and Mike uh, Turner, three Mikes, um, they're all 100% dead set on making sure that, you know, Ukraine is provisioned with arms in total perpetuity. Now that there might be some change in how the supplemental bills are actually constructed. Maybe they pair off some of the um, extraneous uh, funding around, you know, for certain, you know, less directly relevant measures. Um, but this idea that they're preparing to just cut off all support for the war effort just ma- makes no sense. It never made any sense, but makes even less sense now in light of, you know, who the incoming committee chairs are, uh, even just the margin in Congress kind of makes it so that you know, the Democrats are going to probably play a bit more of an outsized role than maybe Republicans would have liked. And they're 100% uniformly behind Ukraine funding, of course. Um, so this idea that, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene and like, you know, a dozen or so other members of Congress could steer the ship um, in that sense is uh, completely nonsensical, I think. I agree. I mean, I think that Republicans, no matter what they say, they're addicted to war, just like the Democrats are. And they play the same bullshit game that they play with big tech. Oh, uh, you know, we're going to rein in big tech, but yet they never do. And, oh, we're going to rein in the spending. What they'll do is they'll have some sort of, you know, way to track, uh, you know, an audit where the money goes, which they won't be able to do anyway. And, you know, make it so it's palatable, maybe to when they're all at their country clubs talking about it. But they're just going to shit away money on war efforts. And if it's not Ukraine, then they're going to do it in Taiwan. And if it's not Taiwan, they'll find some other fucking place to do it. But, you know, like, I don't trust for one second until they prove themselves that they're ever going to stick by any of that crap. There's not, they're just, like I said, they're addicted to war. Yeah. And, you know, I, uh, I started saying, you know, the minute that there were reports that Iran was supposedly providing drones to Russia, you know, that's going to be instantly used as a way to discipline Republicans to continue supporting the interventionist policy because, you know, Iran chants, chants death to America as we all know, and they want to wipe Israel off the map, so we have to fight them as a in like a proxy style war against Ukraine. Or like if we capitulate on Ukraine and Russia, that emboldens Iran, and they they also say that it emboldens North Korea because the war has broadened out into this bizarre, multifaceted international proxy war where all of a sudden North Korea and South Korea are like on competing sides in Ukraine, as if that makes any sense. But because, you know, they have the whole, the whole axis of evil, like the axis of evil 2.0 is operative in Ukraine, it's not just about fighting Russia. And if it was only about fighting Russia, maybe you could like, get enough Republicans to be wary of it, right? But because it's broadened out now, and has supposedly all these second and third order implications for China, for Iran, etc., then, uh, you know, good luck convincing a critical mass of Republicans that even if they might have these tentative concerns about the viability of the policy that, you know, in the overall, when push comes to shove, they're 
probably still going to stick with the status quo because they're not going to countenance, you know, emboldening Russia and China. Sorry, China and uh, Iran, and uh, you know, even if you know Russia might not be as high on their priority list, but if it's, if the, Russia is so now interconnected allegedly with uh, China and Iran, then they can't even you know indirectly embolden those two those particular two enemies, which more kind of directly bear on like the beating heart of Republican sentiment in terms of their foreign policy priorities. Like they're, they're so emotional, like it's so easy to manipulate these leaders because they don't do their homework, right? Like enough to really understand like what's right and what's wrong. Like you shouldn't be like if you're not willing to die yourself for that battle and there isn't really an overwhelming, compelling reason why it must happen. Like there is no reason to contemplate this bullshit. And the fact is, is that the Republicans and the Democrats, but we're talking about Republicans now, like. They're they're weak as hell as far as like what like as far as like their convictions on things. They get me manipulated by business, big business, by the military industrial complex, by whoever it is that's manipulating them. And they will find an excuse. If it's not this one, it's that one. If it's not that one, it's that one. If it, it, it's just a continual game of like like uh, like, you know, like a frog. And if, and if it's, and you know, they will, if, you know, they, if, if, if then India pisses us off, then, you know, then we'll go after Pakistan. If Pakistan, we can go India. Like, it's just always whatever it has to be to keep this, like, thing going. Yeah. You know, if I had to guess, I would suspect that you'll see something similar to what happened after the 2006 midterms. And I, you know, I, I spelled out this theory before the election uh, in the last month now, I guess it's December. Um, but, you know, after the 2006 midterms, which was all about how the Democrats were going to stand up to Bush and they were going to fundamentally alter the trajectory of the war and not give a blank check. Pelosi actually used the phrase blank check saying no longer is this tenable to give to Bush. Right. What they did was, uh, you know, they had a bunch of um, hullabaloo about the next supplemental funding bill. And ultimately what happened is the Democrats passed a the biggest supplemental funding bill that had yet been passed for the Iraq and Afghanistan wars uh, without any conditions. But they're able to throw enough of a bone to Democrats who thought that, that if they were electing the Democrats to take over Congress, they would actually buck Bush on Iraq. They threw enough of a bone to those voters where you did have, you know, enough of Democrats in the House and Senate voting against it to show that, okay, there is some opposition, right? But ultimately it doesn't mean anything because the bill's passed. So I would imagine that there would be something similar with Republicans on Ukraine where, yeah, you'll have a certain faction of the party voting against these bills. But, you know, the the, the leadership in both bodies, uh, you know, McConnell and McCarthy, they'll know that they still have the votes to get it passed, right? So it's not actually going to jeopardize the enactment of these measures, uh, but they can have like a certain amount of political cover where they'll say, oh, look, you know, um, Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene and maybe Josh Hawley, you know, they stood up for the anti-interventionist or uh, isolationist faction of the Republican Party, but they couldn't get enough of a critical mass to actually change the passage or to affect the passage of the ultimate bill and that's going to be seen as oh at least they they did something that's going to be used to try to placate elements of the party even though it's kind of a a concerted strategy from the beginning to like have this patina of opposition whereas even when in practice they're going to basically just perpetuate the status quo 
Yeah, I mean, listen, like, I, I agree. I, it's just, it's the whole thing is disturbing. I, I mean, like, again, like, uh, I'll be, when, when you hear somebody start to say things like, why do we have so many freaking bases everywhere? Like, let's rein that in. Like, let's, like, there are so many ways we can rein stuff in that are just so obvious. It doesn't take a genius to, to figure out we don't need hundreds of bases around the world. That's just empire globe, like, just empire bullying bullshit, you know? And, uh, until I hear Republicans start saying things that actually matter, like, I don't believe any of it. Well, I mean, that was, I mean, that was kind of a bipartisan thing, actually, starting in the Clinton administration, believe it or not, post-1989, when the Soviet Union dissolved. There was a, fa- you know, a fairly broad consensus around the lack of necessity for such a sprawling U.S. global footprint. So there were base closures that um, Clinton and even Bush and then Obama and then Trump to some extent um, initiated that were kind of remnants of this Cold War footprint but that no longer was uh, relevant given the dissolution of the Soviet Union. But now, I mean, I think you're going to see very little movement on that score because you have not just one but two perceived great powers that need to be combated in part by the not just the pre- the retention of existing bases, but the construction of further ones. I mean, Kamala Harris was just in the um, South Pacific, you know, meeting with um, the Malaysian president um, about uh, you know the construction of new bases, new U.S. bases in like rough proximity to the South China Sea and stuff and stuff. So. You know, that's, I think there's, uh, when whatever momentum might have previously existed around kind of rolling back some of that excessive U.S. footprint, given the supposed dire international uh, kind of context now with both China and Russia having to be simultaneously combated, you know, you're not going to really see a whole lot of support for um, removing those bases because it's going to be viewed as some sort of appeasement or emboldenment of both China and, and, and Russia, even though China at this point only has one overseas base of any significant magnitude, which is in um, Djibouti. And that was only created in 2017, or at least that's what's said in this new Pentagon document that came out this week that I skimmed on China's uh, military presence. So I, I wouldn't bet on um, Democrats or Republicans really having much of a desire to uh, remove any of these bases, and, and if, if anything, they're going to construct new ones. I mean, there's a brand new base being constructed right now, permanently in Poland. Um, and, and listen, like I get it, like like with Poland, the Pol- Poland's a weird scenario. Like they they like I mean they they are scared shit of war, and like and they've been run over enough. Where I get I get the location, I get the proximity and stuff, but I mean again, like how does this help America? Like essentially, the way I look at it is that let's say a Russia and a China, they want to see a multipolar war, a multipolar world, as opposed to a unipolar like like you know dominated by America that we all kind of pitch in. Like they see America as part of. They don't mind the American economy. Like, they don't mind us playing a part in everything. It's just we can't be the – they want us to be a, a, one, a member of a team, not the person that owns the team, if that makes sense. Like, from a grander perspective, like, I don't see how us having a base in any of these places, like, in any way actually helps America, you know, because ultimately, like, you know – 
It's just a, I mean, there's fucking starving kids in America. Yeah. Like, literally, kids so anyway, just to there. correct, just to correct myself, it wasn't it wasn't Malaysia, it was the Philippines that uh, Kamala was at. Right. But, but yeah, but like you know what I'm saying? Like I mean, like what? Yeah. How the hell does that help? The person that's starving right now in America. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, people, people. I, I mean, uh, Republicans in particular are the most gung ho, probably, about China as this existential threat. I mean, you'll see the point made that, you know, yeah, maybe we do have to support Ukraine against Russia, but the ultimate threat is really China, right? That's kind of one of the benchmark, the uh, baseline views of the Republicans, and you know, embedded in that view is this idea that China at all. Um, achieving parity with the United States in terms of its global influence is this fundamental intolerable threat, right? Such that the United States needs to potentially even put it all on the line for, in terms of a war over Taiwan. So I, I think, and nobody ever really explains why it is that the increasing influence of China is this cataclysmic of a threat to the United States. Like, why is it that if the United States were simply just one of several poles instead of the unipolar um, power, that that is somehow this seismic um, risk that, you know, jeopardizes American security and prosperity? It just so it's just kind of taken for granted that that's the case. And it's almost it's, it's, it really is. A, it's it's, it's it, arrogant. It's not it is arrogant and it's not true and it's greed. One of the things is that when America goes into places, let's say they go into Africa, right? And they strike a deal with an African country or a third world country and whatever, we extract. So we do our deal, let's just say for whatever it is, infrastructure or whatever. And then on top of that deal, we rob them of resources. And this is what we do. And, and we do it well. Whereas Russia and China when they have traditionally gone in there, they go in for more of a win-win, all right? And when they go in for more of a win-win, it started that way because back in the day, they couldn't provide as much as America did. So they didn't have to go in. They couldn't really go in there and just extract and dominate the hell out of these people. But the point is, is that now all the nations, when they're going to make a deal, and let's say to make a port or whatever it is, and they're looking at it and they're like, okay, we can deal with like the collective West or we can deal with America. They're going to come in here and they're going to rape us. Whereas the other ones are now on a level where they can offer as much as America now and they won't. And that scares the shit out of America, even though the way America acts is like nonsensical because we're still pushing these people closer to Russia, the human business of Russia and China by the way we act. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, here's what I want to see in order to put any credence in these warnings about the supposed um, menace of China's global influence. And I don't, I don't argue either that China is totally benign or there's no reason to be skeptical or even wary of their global influence, right? I'm sort of agnostic on it. Right? I want to see evidence. I want to see evidence. But you know, you know what evidence would actually be helpful in that regard? Let's see China engineer or impose some sort of regime change or coup somewhere around the world that's even roughly equivalent to what the U.S. does all the time. I mean, all the time. just to give you one time. example that hardly anyone would even know, even people who are very plugged into politics probably missed this because it was a one-day story, and even the one day that it was a story, it was a very minor story. In September of 2021, there was a coup in Guinea, right, in West Africa. Hardly anybody knows that that's a country, right, but it's a tiny country. There was a coup basically of a, uh, you know, as typically happens in Africa, 
part of the military um, rebelled against the leader and basically ousted him. And guess what? It turns out that that the like the rebel military commander who then overthrew the government and, and, and put the president or uh, the leader under house arrest and enacted the coup had just gotten uh, just been trained by American commandos in Guinea. Right, right, yeah. So, uh, so that that's just one one example of dozens or even more that you could cite that are the U.S. track record. Right? I mean, look look at Venezuela. I mean, there was the whole. I mean, Rubio was on a tear in 2019. You know, trying to tweet a, a coup into existence in Venezuela. I don't know if you remember that. Right. Yeah. Of that, course. Well, well, at the same time, we we go around saying that we're the uh, we're the uh, you know face of democracy. Right. But so just just give me one example of China doing anything that even roughly approximates that, and then maybe I'll be willing to entertain these you know scaremongering theories about how intolerable it would be for China to amass anything like a greater global influence because I haven't seen any evidence of that. The only country that China seems interested in in this regard is uh, Taiwan, which even the United States has as its own, you know, legal, uh, legally binding statements um, affirmed is part of China. Or look at the elections that just happened. I think it was like this week, and I don't know if you saw that in Taiwan, but the basically there was a route, and it was all by people that want to be part of China. Yeah, I, I, I did see that. You know, I, that was I saw that being the takeaway, but when I read it more into it, I'm doubtful that that's actually the correct way to interpret it because it, I mean, they were the equivalent of like off year elections or local elections in Taiwan, right? Where it was for local was office for mayor for mayoralities and stuff, and uh, a lot of people. It was. Uh, it seems doubtful that it would necessarily translate into what the voting p- pattern would be for like national office, where that would actually have bearing on China policy. I mean, it was basically just ousting um, incompetent local officials and local uh, yeah. jurisdictions. So I'm not sure that I would necessarily look at it that way. No, but, um, but, yeah. but I mean, it certainly it certainly didn't go in the direction that America would have thought it would have gone. You know what I mean? Like it was definitely. It wasn't like like I mean it wasn't it, it was. It was definitely like, you know what I mean? Like, I, I get what you're saying with that, but, but it wasn't, it, 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 we look at it as like, there's this like, that, that with, in Taiwan, that there's this a hundred percent all or nothing. We can never be part of China thing. Whereas like, it's not a hundred percent that way. Like, you, you know what I mean? Like there, there's, I think that Taiwan's skeptical of America. We've been taking a lot of the arms that we were supposed to be giving them that they bought from us and not delivering it to them and giving it to Ukraine. And they're pissed about that. Yeah, yeah. Actually, um, the great grandson, or the is it the grandson or great grandson, that one of like the the apparent descendants of Chiang Kai Shek, was elected uh, <laughs> was elected mayor of Taipei. Well, that's, um, but, yeah, um, which, which would kind of you know maybe complicate some of the uh, prevailing yeah, consensus views toward Taiwan's political attitudes. But yeah, I don't know. I, I tend to doubt that um, if there were. I mean, I don't know. I'm not an expert on internal political dynamics in Taiwan, but I would tend to doubt that if there was actually a national election, it would transpire in quite the same way. It seems like, you know, if the, you know, China did launch an unprecedented action after Pelosi made that visit over the summer where they shot missiles over Taiwan for the first time. Um, and so, you know, that probably does tend to harden attitudes on the China question, it was just a matter of whether those attitudes were necessarily uh, going to be expressed in this particular round of elections when it was more for local and municipal stuff. 
But um, anyway, listen, I will let you go or let somebody else. Uh, yeah, get, yeah, uh, yeah. All right, thanks, John.